Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Morning after a very late night and a raucous debate, right? Raucous, chaotic. Some good lines. Some good lines. Some punches that didn't land. That's also true. This is true. We've got that to get to and a lot more this morning. Let's start with five things to know for this Thursday, September 28th. As we just said, pretty chaotic to our debate. Appears to have left little change in the Republican primary this morning, though. The candidates sharpening their attacks against each other and the frontrunner, Donald Trump, who again wasn't there. And President Biden will also take on former President Trump today, calling on him, calling him an ongoing threat to democracy ahead of that potential 2024 matchup. Also happening this morning, House Republicans hold their first public hearing in the impeachment inquiry of President Biden. The clock, though, ticking down to a government shutdown, it's now just two days away. Also breaking this morning, the American soldier who crossed into North Korea on purpose is now back on U.S. soil, landing near San Antonio. And important FYI for senators, your dress code <laughs> is now officially business attire if you're on the Senate floor. The rule comes after Senator John Fetterman's hoodie and shorts look became a bit of a flashpoint in the upper chamber. CNN This Morning starts right now. We will get to the debate in a moment, but what, what is business attire these days? I, I haven't seen my husband wear a suit to the quite, office in many years it now. It is quite literally outlined in the legislation. Okay, of course he read it. What does it say? Passed unanimously. I, I don't want to misquote it. <laughs> Senator Manchin would be very upset because I know this is a big <laughs> issue for him. But I think it's a jacket, a tie, and slacks. No hoodies. <clears throat> and in a very Senate manner, since no one uses the word slacks anymore, pretty sure that was the explicit pass. Except you, Manningly. We'll slash. talk more about that later. Donald Trump's rivals battling each other for a breakout moment last night in a chaotic debate on the stage. Watch. You said Bob Payful. If I may finish, you can't be on both sides. I believe in these people. These are good people on the stage. Governor DeSantis, I'm going straight. Sir, we will have to cut your mic, and I don't want to do that. I don't. And yet again, the Republican frontrunner, a no-show. It got rowdy with the candidates repeatedly talking over one another, interrupting each other. Vivek Ramaswamy and Governor Ron DeSantis ended up having the most speaking time. Border security and government spending were the most talked about issues of the night. Several candidates attacked Trump's record and slammed him for skipping the debate. But overall, they didn't really spend that much time talking about it. Instead, Debating Trump is in Michigan, trying to upstage President Biden's historic visit to join the auto workers picket line. Trump joked that his primary opponents don't stand a chance. No, they're all job candidates. They want to be in the uh, they want to do anything. Secretary of something. They even say VP. I don't know. Does anybody see any VP in the group? I don't think so. Jung Law is live for us at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library after last night's debate. Early morning, Kyung, after a late night, these candidates are still fighting to close a huge gap with Trump, but it seemed more like they were fighting one another last night. 
Yeah, you know, Phil, it doesn't seem they quite accomplished that goal of chipping away at Donald Trump's lead. This was a debate that was, as you just heard, it was messy, it was loud. And at times you couldn't understand what anyone was saying on that stage. To answer. A chaotic second GOP presidential debate with seven candidates all vying for second place behind Donald Trump, criticizing the frontrunner for not showing up. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. The candidates invoked Trump's name more this time around, zeroing in on the economy and possible government shutdown. The people in Washington are shutting down the American dream with their reckless behavior. They borrowed, they printed, they spent, and now you're paying more for everything. They are the reason for that. And where's Joe Biden? He's completely missing in action from leadership. And you know who else is missing in action? Donald Trump is missing in action. He should be on this stage tonight. He owes it to you to defend his record. Pence took direct aim at the president's Bidenomics agenda. Joe Biden doesn't belong on a picket line. He belongs on the unemployment line. Bidenomics has failed. Wages are not keeping up with inflation. Auto workers and all American workers are feeling it. On the auto workers strike, a range of views and blame. They want four-day French work weeks, but more money. They want more benefits, working fewer hours. That is simply not going to stand. The reason why people are striking in Detroit is because Joe Biden's interference with capital markets and with free markets. The debate hit on many red meat issues for the Republican Party, including immigration and border security. Our laws are being broken every day at the southern border, every day. And Joe Biden and his crew is doing nothing about enforcing that law. Defund sanctuary cities. You see what's happening in Philadelphia right now. It's got to stop. We need to make sure we put 25,000 more Border Patrol and ICE agents on the ground and let them do their job. Well, if the kid of a Mexican diplomat doesn't enjoy birthright citizenship, then neither does the kid of an illegal migrant who broke the law to come here. Vivek Ramaswamy, who faced direct attacks during the first debate, was forced to defend his business record in China and his use of TikTok. I have a radical idea for the Republican Party. We need to win elections. And part of how we win elections is reaching the next generation of young Americans where they are. This is infuriating because TikTok is one of the most dangerous social media apps yes, that is. we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. And the two candidates from South Carolina sparred over gas taxes in their home state and curtains. Nikki offered a 10 percent, 10 cent gas tax increase in South Carolina. As the U.N. ambassador, you literally Bring it, put $50,000 on <laughs> curtains and a $15 million subsidized location. Next. You got bad information. First of all, I fought the gas tax in South Carolina multiple times. Secondly, on the uh, curtains, do your yes. homework, Tim, because Obama bought those curtains. Did you send them back? It's in the press. Did you send them back? It's the State Department. Did you send them Did back? You send them back? You're the one that works in Congress. Oh, oh my gosh. You get it. You time. hung them on your, your, your curtains. I, they your were curtains. there before I even showed up at the residence. You here's, are scrapping. 
So after all that yelling at the debate, what you did not hear, though, is anyone saying that they were going to take the foot off the gas. You didn't hear anyone say that they were going to step off the campaign trail. In fact, many of them will be heading south of where I'm standing right now to Orange County. The Ramaswamy, Scott and DeSantis are all going to show up in Orange County for the California Republican Party convention. The biggest name, though, that is going to show up for that event, Phil and Poppy, Donald Trump. Jung, mm-hmm. thank you for the reporting. Quite a night. Quite a night. I have so many thoughts. Let's bring in the writer of Very Serious Newsletter and the host of Very Serious Podcast, Josh Barrow, CNN Political. You, you laugh. Yeah. He set this up intentionally so that we always <laughs> say that Josh say Barrow is very serious. Uh, commentators Van Jones and Margaret Hoover and CNN anchor and senior political analyst John Avalon. Welcome, guys. Appreciate you waking up after a late night. Uh, look, there are a lot of things I want to get into, uh, especially Nikki Haley's seeming reference to a Billy Madison quote, um, <laughs> which I love more than anything in the world. But I want to start with, I think, the most important element here, which is when you're down by 30 or 40 in the polls, you need to figure out a way to chip away at it. We heard some of it. Take a listen. You know who else is missing in action? Donald Trump is missing in action. He should be on this stage tonight. My former running mate, Donald Trump, actually has a plan to start to consolidate more power in Washington, D.C., consolidate more power in the executive branch. This is where President Trump went wrong. He focused on trade with China. He didn't focus on the fact that they were buying up our farmland. He didn't focus on the fact that they were killing Americans. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. Roasted. Wow. Um, (laughs) I think the thing, we pulled all that, and and there was, I think, a little bit more of a frontal assault to some degree, but still not, Margaret, like a a significant one where people came out of that debate saying, wow, they just absolutely launched at Donald Trump. Is that fair? I don't think the fundamental dynamics changed at all after last night. I think all of the candidates came 10 to 25 percent more amped up sort of more themselves, you know, Tim Scott grew a goatee and had elbows sort of punching in either direction. But the fundamentals are basically the same. Donald Trump is leading, uh, pretending like none of them exists, nipping at his heels or his ankles. And the rest of them, honestly, if they were smart, would do more of what that montage just showed. They're not running against each other. Tim Scott made a mistake going after Nikki Haley. All these little differences between the two of them. I mean, there is somebody who is wanting to return to power. And as Mike Pence said consolidate power and continue to disrespect the Constitution. And there are the rest of them. Yeah, this is the 10 percent more critical of Donald Trump differentiation strategy, which ain't going to cut it. Um, You know, it's great to call out policy differences. It's fine to say he should be on this debate stage. He should be. And the RNC should step up and actually put some teeth into that kind of an enforcement mechanism. But ultimately, the argument is he's unfit for office because he tried to overthrow our democracy, degrade our Constitution. And he's been indicted on four counts of over 81 times. So 91 times. So that's the argument to make. And they all basically pulled their punches for fear of offending some part of his base. That's not the clarity that people expect from leadership. Until that's done by someone other than Chris Christie, they're not really going to get traction. Does it get done, Van? If they didn't do it last night, why would they do it in the future? I, I, just, I just see it differently. I don't yeah, think... what do I don't, you see? I don't think if you're a Republican, jumping up and down about the indictments is going to help you at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just they, they're, they're in a mirror world. And in that, in, in that world, it's, it's kind of like with O.J. Simpson... Uh, you know, the black community kind of knew O.J. Simpson was not the best person in the world, but they hated the LAPD worse. And so that's kind of how this is. It's, 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 it's that. It's like you have these Republican voters. They know Trump is a scoundrel, but they just think the Democratic establishment and the deep state is worse. Um, for me, what I saw 
was, you know, these, these debates is not just about who gets to be the nominee. It's about the country. Uh, it's about what happens to the party along the way. Uh, they were mainstreaming, attacking the babies of immigrants. Saying you don't belong here. You shouldn't be a citizen here. That's terrible. Uh, they were mainstreaming, denying care to transgender folks. They were mainstreaming, abandoning Ukraine. So in addition to not saying more mean things about Donald Trump, which I would like, but I don't think would move the needle, there's something happening to that party and something happening to this country. I thought that was very disturbing. I mean, they were also uh, pushing to repeal the Green New Deal, which is amazing because it hasn't been passed in the law yet. Uh, or signed. So congrats to the Biden administration and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for your legislative victory we didn't know about. Um, I think this is actually a really interesting point because you watch these debates, particularly if no one's going to make a huge move at the front runner or mm -hmm. follow kind of what John's saying or what Margaret's saying. And to Van's point, what has become kind of the baseline kind of key points for the party, do you think Van's right? This is, this is it now. You can listen to the Romneys, you can listen to the McConnells, you can listen to other people who come from kind of the old guard of republicanism, but this is it. I mean, the main way that these candidates are trying to differentiate themselves from Donald Trump is by trying to get to his right, getting to his right on entitlements, getting to his right on abortion. And I think, you know, I think Van's right that, the, you know, the argument that John made there, that's a general election argument. And it's a perfectly good general election argument that will help Democrats. But it won't it won't help you in a Republican primary where people where the, the, the typical voter thinks that everything Donald Trump did through that process at the 2020 election was was fine and, and justified. I, there is a subtler argument that you could make. About, you know, even if, you know, even if you're okay with all the stuff Donald Trump did, why this is bad for the Republican Party and conservatives, that he can't run for a second term, that he's going to be spending all of his time and money during the general election on defending himself in, in these, in these legal matters that he has, regardless of their merits, rather than trying to win elections for Republicans. And you saw Ron DeSantis get at that a little bit, talking about, you know, we need a president who can serve two terms. The problem is, I don't think that that many voters think about this in, in those terms, you know, like they don't think about it like if they were a party officer operative trying to implement the party agenda. And that's what's that's what's so difficult for these candidates in this race that, yeah, you know, you have to attack Donald Trump to be relevant. But if you attack Donald Trump from the left, which is effectively what you're doing, if you say, you know, it's so terribly tried to steal the election, then that's not going to get you anywhere in this I, primary. I, if that was useful, Chris Christie would be leading the primary. I, I think the problem is considering that overturning an election is an issue that appeals to the left. The argument I'm making is that electability matters. That's why political parties exist. We all get there's a cult of personality going on. Mm -hmm. But what's going to ultimately deflate that is confronting facts with strength, right? This is the old, you know, strength matters if you're trying to be a leader. And, and tiptoeing around and finding small differences, I don't think cuts it. D Republicans still like to think of themselves as a party of law and order that defends the Constitution, that's patriotic, that defends democracy. And if you take those facts to the woodshed, I think you can start to carve out your own niche. Well, isn't that what Chris Christie has been doing? And Chris Christie is actually rising in the polls in New Hampshire. Again, this is not a national primary. Yeah. This is a series of maybe 25 relevant primaries, but not weighted evenly. First Iowa, then New Hampshire, then South Carolina and Nevada. And it's the makeup of the electorate is different in each one, too. And in fact, independents are voting in New Hampshire. So the dynamics are totally different. And Chris Christie is beating DeSantis now in New Hampshire, at least according to many of the polls. So it's, it's, a, it's a different makeup. The, 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 the composition of the base is different in New Hampshire. So, so your, your view is that um, the national polls are, are one thing, but where it matters in New Hampshire, um, the Chris Christie strategy is working. Chris Christie's strategy is working right now in New Hampshire because you can see he's climbing up in the polls and he's beat DeSantis in some cases. They are all still lagging to uh, Donald gotta, Trump. Hang on. You guys are all coming back. This is a <laughs> teaser, and I love the enthusiasm. We're also talking to Chris Christie in the 8 a.m. hour, so stay tuned for that. Um, you guys stick around. We have a lot more to talk to. Who's the appetizer?
Get the great. I can't wait for the main course. This happening overnight. The suspect in the murder of a Baltimore tech CEO has been arrested. We'll tell you those details. And just a short time ago, the American soldier who ran into North Korea has arrived back on U.S. soil. What officials are saying about the negotiations that brought him home? Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited-edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. He voted for the spending. You voted he has for made you, sure that the you borders actually are open asked and they for a gas tax increase in South Carolina. 12 years. Where have you been? Where I have voted you been, no 10 cents on this gallon in South Carolina as the U.N. ambassador. You literally Bring it, put $50,000 on curtains <laughs> in a $15 million subsidized location. On the uh, curtains, do your yes. homework, Tim, because Obama bought those curtains. Did you send them back? All right, our team is back. It was an appetizer. We couldn't wait for the main chorus. Here you guys are. Appreciate it. Um, I want to talk to you, Margaret, about the back and forth between Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. Obviously, they're friends who respect each other. Was that... Maybe not so friendly. I guess, but was that... Was that useful to either of their causes? Uh, it, it actually, Nikki Haley turned out just fine. It shows she, I mean, there are some of the headlines of use the word swagger. I mean, she can pivot. She's very adept at handling attacks and also going on the attack, but she didn't ask for that. As soon as she saw he was going there, she was ready. And so what you, what you see, here, here's what Nikki Haley did, though. And, and let's be clear, that story was silly. Okay, that was a story that was printed by the New York Times when it first came out. The New York Times issued a correction. The curtains. The curtains curtains story. I mean, it was just silly and below the belt. Why was he doing that? He's trying to distinguish himself from her and from the crowd, whereas they all should be distinguishing themselves from Donald Trump. I thought it, it... it didn't play well with Republican voters, at least the ones that were in the room. It's pretty, it's pretty obscure outcome, too. Van, you're frustrated. That's not what happened. What do you mean, what, that's not what happened? That's not what happened. What do you mean? They, they asked, they, they tried to pit them against each other, the, the moderators. They tried to pit them against each other. And Tim Scott turned to her and didn't attack her and actually made substantive points. Then About curtains? No, no, that was the, that was the second I'm, question. I'm going somewhere. He didn't attack her. That was the most important moment of the a debate. Tim Scott was asked to attack her and didn't do it. And then the, he did. Then when she had the opportunity to talk, she attacked him. Then he tried to, then he came with the silly nonsense, yeah. not being Tim Scott. Tim Scott's not an attacker. Mm-hmm. That's right. He, That's he, right. Tim Scott tried to show character. He tried to he show tried class. To, yeah. He tried to show integrity. He didn't fall for it. And Nikki Haley attacked him anyway. 
and she's benefiting from it. Of course, he looks like a fool attacking her because that wasn't what he went out there to do. Mm. And so here's the thing. There are things that are happening on the stage that are very disturbing. I was so proud that Tim Scott didn't attack her, given the opportunity. And I was sad that she had t- chose to attack him. Mm-hmm. Then now we're talking about the silly thing that happened, but the main point got missed. But this just shows how irrelevant this debate was. Correct. I mean, the, the, the curtain thing is silly, but even the rest of that exchange about, you know, the, the you tried to raise the gasoline tax. No, I was trying to do a deal with the income tax and the gasoline tax in the state of South Carolina. It's just it's small issues between two candidates who are not going to come close to receiving this nomination. Um, that doesn't tell us very much about the future of this country. I mean, it's the, when you put seven candidates on this stage who are not going to be the Republican nominee for president and have them argue with each other like they're pretending that the contest is among this, these people, that the question is, is Tim Scott or Nikki Haley going to be the Republican nominee? Of course, you end up with pointless exchanges because the, the exercise is pointless. Hold on. There's, I don't know, Phil, I don't know if you, you know, surrogate, surrogate argument here, but the, the election you is literally not no definitively over. Right now. That, mm. your oh, we're idea. back to the best. I, I don't know. My, my, this is, this is someone the on the This is the perennial, uh, yeah, John V. Phil debate about whether the election is over. I heard, by the way, the winner is steak dinner. Winner, winner. Did we decide steak dinner? I was going to do, you know, sort of Grater's ice cream for, anyway, we'll figure that out later. Uh, The Ohio thing. Um, So look, here's the real issue, I think. When the field starts thinning out, one of these candidates will be a credible alternative to Donald Trump. It might very well be Nikki Haley. To dismiss that out of hand, might, might be, I would have said Tim Scott for the first debate is a possibility. Um, so the issue is that what I thought, man makes an important point about what you got to pay attention to is the water level of the policy conversation that's becoming acceptable, right? There seems to be a new consensus, for example, that the U.S. military should directly attack drug, uh, drug cartels in Mexico. Right. That's a significant shift yeah. of policy dramatically to the right. That's worth notable, right? This silly oppo about curtains and, and, you know, all that. You're right, candidates always do best when they stay true to their core. Mm. But it's actually paying attention and tracking. The, and also the fact that, look, you know, when, when, when uh, Mike Pence was asked about Obamacare, he immediately pivoted to, uh, he's concerned about school shootings and the And then Dana Perino was like, Obamacare? Do you care to answer again? Yes. If you gave him another chance and he didn't. No. So, so that, that, that I think, you know, let, let's focus on the substance because then you can actually have a, a, a lot of the stylistic stuff is just is distraction, is distraction. Based. But the problem also is that um, Donald Trump has watered down the rhetoric and the discourse so much mm-hmm. that po- policy isn't what his voters are going to the polls for. They're going to the polls for the feeling they get by supporting him, these cultural base issues. And it, the, I mean, this just, it, the contrast with Reagan was so stark yes. because the arguments when Reagan was running, the, was running for president were, were substantive and they were policy-based and they were nuanced. And Republicans could have that kind of debate. And that was the major contrast between um, the, the kind of debates we used to have versus what Donald Trump has done to the party. Okay, we have a lot more to get to. Stick around, guys. Uh, John, Margaret, Josh, Van. We'll be back in just a little bit. We also have this. New overnight, the suspect in the murder of a 26-year-old tech chief executive in Baltimore is now in police custody. Pablo Pere was found dead on Monday, having suffered blunt force trauma. Police then launched a manhunt for Jason Billingsley, calling him, quote, extremely dangerous. They did not immediately release details about his capture, but more information will be announced in an 11 a.m. news conference. LaPere's friends and family and community gathered for an emotional vigil last night. Her father choking back tears as he discussed how proud he was of his daughter's hard work and ambition. She's always, always been a leader, always been driven and creative, um, always attended, intended to be a high achiever. Um, even didn't mention it or say it or anything, but you can just tell that she knew what she wanted to accomplish. And there was nothing that would get in her way 
of accomplishing that. Ella Perez's father also said she was the definition of daddy's little girl. Also new this morning, U.S. Army Private Travis King back on U.S. soil after being expelled from North Korea. He flew in on a military flight that landed at Joint Base San Antonio. If you remember, he is a soldier who crossed into North Korea during a tour of the demilitarized zone in July. Just before that, King was released from a South Korean detention facility after an alleged assault at a Seoul nightclub. Warren Lieberman following all of this from the Pentagon. I mean, there are so many questions. Warren, this broke during the show yesterday. But we still don't have answers, do we, from U.S. officials as to why North Korea just let him go? I mean, the U.S. says no conditions, no concessions. And, and none that North Korea have mentioned either, only saying they expelled him after they concluded their investigation into him. But what that investigation was based on, what they were looking into or what they found, doesn't seem that North Korea has answered that as well. So the question of what was North Korea's motivation in all of this is one that is very much open. Several hours ago, as you pointed out, Private Travis King landed at Joint Base San Antonio. He's on his way to Brook Army Medical Center. That's where he'll get a medical evaluation and perhaps also likely a psychiatric evaluation after some 70 days in North Korea. Worth noting, that's where Brittany Griner and Trevor Reed were taken after they were released from Russia, because that's where the army deals with those who have been in detention and need to get back to life or reacclimate into life. His journey out of North Korea, almost as bizarre as his journey in, when on July 18th he left the airport and ran across the DMZ into North Korea following a private tour of the DMZ. Here, on his way out, it involved the Swedes, it involved the Chinese. It was Sweden that acted as a sort of interlocutor between the U.S. and North Korea. It was a Swedish convoy that brought uh, Private Travis King to the friendship bridge on the border between North Korea and China. At that point, he was picked up by the U.S. defense attache to China, and he became once again in U.S. military custody. He caught a flight from there to South Korea to Osan Air Base there, and then a military flight back to the, Uni- back to the United States. We were actually able to track those flights uh, on flight tracking websites as he made his way back to the U.S. for the first time in some two months. He'd been able to speak with his family, Poppy, and he is now back in the U.S., uh, where he will sort of reacclimate to life outside of North Korea here. Yeah, and still many of those questions that, um, that need to be answered. Uh, we'll get updates as they come. Thanks, Warren, for the reporting at the Pentagon. Well, former President Trump, missing from last night's debate stage, and said he was in Michigan vying for the union vote. We'll tell you which GOP rival he attacked directly after the debate. Also, the writers struck a deal. What about the actors? Not far behind. We have updates on those negotiations straight ahead. He wants electric vehicle mandates that will spell the death of the U.S. auto industry. You know, it doesn't matter. I watch it. You're negotiating a contract. You're all on picket lines and everything. But it doesn't make a damn bit of difference what you get, because in two years, you're all going to be out of business. You're not getting anything. You can be loyal to American labor. You can be loyal to the environmental lunatics. But you can't really be loyal to both. It's one or the other. This morning, former President Trump shifting his focus to the general election and the increasing possibility of a Trump-Biden rematch. He skipped the debate again last night against his Republican rivals and made his case to a crowd of supporters. You see him there in Michigan. He cast himself as pro-worker, repeatedly urged a union to endorse him. Of course, Michigan is a battleground state that he lost to Biden in 2020. Kristen Holmes live in Detroit with more. I mean, it's very clear how the UAW president feels about Trump. As Phil and I have been discussing all week, Trump's policies 
in the heartland on auto specifically are very clear in his actions from last time around. Did any of that matter last night? It's not going to matter when Trump is speaking to a crowd of his supporters because they are going to support him no matter what. And that's really what we saw last night. But one thing was very clear that in this path to the White House, Trump is keenly aware that Michigan is a critical part of that. As you mentioned, Biden won in 2020. Trump won it in 2016. It's really what helped propel him to the White House. And last night, that was his messaging. He said he stood with striking auto workers, that he opposed any sort of quick transition to electric vehicles. You heard him there, uh, that it would cause that it would cost jobs. And he really sought at times to recast that record that he had while he was in office, a record that, as you noted, has been absolutely slammed by union leaders as anti-union, as anti-work, as pro-business. And then he made a plea to a specific union leader, as you mentioned, Sean Fain, the head of United Auto Workers. Take a listen. If you could speak to Sean, he's listening right now, I'm sure. Sean, endorse Trump and you can take a nice two-month vacation, come back, and you guys are going to be better than you ever were. You don't even have to worry. Because the other way, you won't have a vacation, Sean. And in a short period of time, you're not going to have a union. You're not going to have jobs. You're not going to have anything. Okay, so a couple of things to note here, as we've talked about. UAW has not endorsed in 2024. They endorsed Biden in 2020. But we saw Sean Fain greeting Biden at the airport, as well as walking the picket line with him. And he has had nothing but negative things to say about Trump, about him being part of the billionaire class, representing the billionaire class, being essentially everything that unions are against. So it doesn't seem likely that an endorsement is in his future. Now, when I talk to Trump's folks, they say that there is a split between union leaders and the rank and file. And there were a couple of UAW striking workers at Trump's event last night, but not enough to say that there are a complete split here between leadership and the rank and file. So that's something that he's going to have to prove at the ballot box or prove to these union workers every day until a general election, should he be the nominee. Kristen, thank you for being there for that reporting. We'll get back to you soon. Well, back with us, Van Jones, Josh Barrow, John Avalon, and Margaret Hoover. Um, I genuinely would like to do a full hour on electric vehicles and the actual policy. I'm sure that's like a nightmare for lots of people <laughs> um, because I think it's really interesting. But I also feel like it's become such a uh, central point of the argument that Trump is making, not just in Michigan, but writ large about envir environmental policy. And Van, to that idea, you know, that's clearly the way Trump sees this his way in. There are legitimate issues the UAW has with the EV transition and how the Biden administration has tried to accelerate that. Do you think it's possible to actually fight on the facts and policy here? You know, um, it's interesting because in order to retrofit America to use clean energy and use less energy, there's a massive amount of manufacturing uh, capacity that's required. Uh, 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 wind turbines don't build themselves, solar arrays don't build themselves, electric vehicles don't have zero labor, and we're going to make a bunch of them. Uh, but that becomes a little bit complicated, you know, trying to explain to this particular uh, worker about their particular job. What I think is most interesting is that uh, labor matters now. Mm -hmm. Unions matter now. I remember uh, with, with Romney, hold on a second, yeah. I remember with Romney, um, that wasn't, you know, the Republican nominee's you know, main point. Mitt Romney wasn't going around trying to convince unions that he was their friend. So something has happened where this, this rise in labor, 
uh, this, this, this uh, uh, labor discontent is getting both parties to act very differently and show more respect uh, toward labor. Can I ask just one second yeah. you about that, Van? Because that, to me, has been the most fascinating part of the last few weeks. And we dug into the numbers a few days ago here. Why do you think that is? You're so good at getting to the core of why. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Because people are hurting. And people are working very hard and not getting anywhere. And as, as, as a result of that, the people who are sticking up for workers, whether they are billionaires pretending or actual labor leaders, matter a lot more. But a reason for the strength of the union right now is that the pr profits in, in Detroit at the automakers are very high right now. And that's where Donald Trump is, re is really off tone in terms of how he's talking to and about the UAW. You have the UAW out there saying, you have record profits, business is good, we deserve a bigger piece of that. Trump is there saying, you're all going to be bankrupt in two years. And it, one implication of that would be the, the automakers don't, in fact, have money to pay the workers more. And so I think he correctly, I, it's correct that there are issues with the EV transition, but I don't think that Trump is talking about it in a way that reflects the concerns that, that the union seems to have and the workers seem to be aligned with the union. They're trying to get as much of a piece of the transition as they possibly yes. can. They seem to understand it's but, going but let's, to happen. Let's have, let's, let's have a fact-based debate. And I know you're obviously, obviously about that. First of all, I mean, what the Biden administration has done in terms of policy is a lot of incentives to increase manufacturing around uh, EVs. I mean, this is a standard part of Biden's both rhetoric and, and the reality of his record. Now, will people feel that right away? Is there a lot of uncertainty? Of course there is. What's this about? This is about higher than normal uh, union participation rates in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Trump got around 40% of the union, the labor vote last time. There's obviously a disconnect between those, the, the management and, and, uh, and, and labor and the union leadership. But when they start demonizing and, 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 and saying that the Trump, the Biden administration is selling these folks down the river, that ignores the record. 800,000 new manufacturing jobs. In Michigan, manufacturing jobs were down 1,800 over the first three years of Trump's administration. They're up almost 1,900 over the first two years of Biden's administration. Those facts and stats got to matter at the end of the day. Do Donald Trump didn't go there, though, to make these policy points. No, Donald Trump went not. there for stagecraft. He went there for a photo op. He went there for counter-programming to the Republican debate. And he continues to lead in the Republican primary. So it was a totally effective uh, charade insofar as demonstrating that actually the real show is between me and Joe Biden here in Michigan. It has nothing to do with what, you you know, the, the quibbling you hear in Southern California. I think that's, that's the real point here. He's leading and he's going to try to appeal culturally mm -hmm. to white, disenfranchised white working class voters that helped him get there the first time. Yep. It's effective, very clearly. And also, I think it's the reality, despite what John Avalon thinks, that this is, <laughs> and Biden's going to do it today with the democracy speech down in Arizona, which we're going to talk afternoon. a lot about going forward. Um, that's the dynamic right now. There are two people running in a general election race, whether or not that's official or not. All right, everyone stick around. We're going to be speaking with candidates Chris Christie and former Vice President Mike Pence in our 8 a.m. hour as well. So, who won the debate last night? Did anyone win? We asked some voters in Iowa. DeSantis. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Haley. One, two, three, four, five, six. Pence. This morning, Iowa Republicans weighing in on who they think won last night's GOP primary debate with less than four months until the caucus is in their state. While former President Trump is still the undeniable frontrunner there, these voters say the debates are helping them choose an alternative candidate. CNN's Gary Tuckman has more. Which put the legal status of 600,000 dreamers. We have now watched both Republican presidential debates with loyal Republicans in Story County, Iowa. <laughs> both times exasperation at the frequent candidate interruptions. 
but all 18 people in our assembled group say the debates have been valuable to them. So who do they think did best in this second debate? Bergman. One. Christie. Okay, so his toughness didn't appeal to anybody tonight. DeSantis. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Haley. One, two, three, four, five, six. Pence. Ramaswamy. One. Scott. All right, so it looks like DeSantis, the winner in this room. During last month's debate, Vivek Ramaswamy got the highest number of hands raised. Ron DeSantis came in third, behind Nikki Haley. Jeff Ortiz picked Ramaswamy then, DeSantis now. I thought that uh, DeSantis, um, because Vivek won the last debate, and I think that was the overall consensus, he was the target tonight. And so I think that took a lot of the personal attacks against away from DeSantis, and he was able to speak to the issues more than everybody else. Deborah Stoner went from Haley to DeSantis. I feel like he represented himself well, and he did a lot to show that he is a true winner in the, that he could win a general election. 16 of these 18 people say they're undecided about which Republican to caucus for. One says he knows he'll caucus for DeSantis. Another says he's for Burgum. None as of yet committed to Donald Trump. And most tell us they think Trump should be taking the debate stage. I think it's disrespectful that he didn't come to um, try to earn Iowans' votes because so many people's votes are still up for grabs here in Iowa. And so not coming to um, try to earn that with the other candidates, I think, is a sign of disrespect. And I don't think he earned anyone's vote by not coming. Who do you think this was a bad night for? Pence. 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 Why are you all saying Pence? You know, he comes across a little bit like uh, not very believable to me. He's, he's, he's rather pious sounding um, in his manner. Everyone on our panel wants to see less commotion between the candidates. But all in all. Final question, do you think this was good for the party, this debate tonight? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Poppy and Phil, these debate watchers are certainly not the first I've been with who are not happy about candidates interrupting each other. That being said, it seems like everyone we're with is looking forward to watching debate number three, because after all, the great majority of them are still undecided. Poppy, Phil. Yeah, Gary Tuckman, thank you. His pieces are always such a highlight the morning after the debate, because you see in real time how folks are thinking. Yeah, you learn from them, as yeah. opposed to kind of the hysteronics of what's on stage. The hysteronics, huh? Yeah. yeah, there's that. All right, we'll have more of this ahead. Meantime, by the way, still no deal in Washington. Look at the clock. Yikes. Government shutdown. Looks like it is all but inevitable, uh, and the economic impact is going to be severe. We'll talk about that. And Bruce Springsteen making a big announcement about his tour. That is sure to disappoint his fans. We hope he's well and recovering. Back soon. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. From executive producers Park Chan-wook and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max.
right, welcome back. We wish we could tell you we were not in this position, but we are as a country just two days away from a government shutdown. There is no deal in sight. That is clear. House Republicans throwing cold water on the prospect of passing a bipartisan Senate proposal. A number of hardline Republicans in the House opposing further aid to Ukraine and any kind of short-term funding patch. Now, if Congress can't extend funding past Saturday night, it could impact Americans' paychecks, border security, airport travel, food safety, and museums and national parks. So what can we expect in the days and potentially weeks ahead if funding lapses? Well, past shutdowns offer a very clear guide. When we hear things like this shutdown could go on for months or years, we don't have months or years. We have creditors, we have medical bills, we have mortgages, we have rent, we have things that we need to take care of. That was a federal worker from Alabama in 2019. That shutdown, 2018 into 2019, it lasted a record 35 days. More than 800,000 federal employees were forced to go on unpaid leave or work without pay. I have enough for one more mortgage payment, and I got to go to CarMax tomorrow and sell my car. You're going to sell your car? I have to. I don't think that we should be held captive. Like, our paycheck should be held captive just because of something that they need to, like, brawl out. She's exactly right. Those women from Ogden, Utah which had one of the highest concentrations of federal workers in the West at the time. As the mayor told CNN then, the shutdown had a real, real economic impact. The federal employees are part of the ecosystem that helps support all of these small business owners and and shop workers. It's a ripple effect. Correct. Absolutely right. And there was a ripple effect across the broader U.S. economy. According to the Congressional Budget Office, the shutdown cost this economy $11 $11 billion, $3 billion of which just evaporated, right? It never came back when people went back to work. Well, what about air travel during the last shutdown? Air traffic controllers who are working without pay issued this warning at the time. Quote, we cannot even calculate the level of risk currently at play nor predict the point at which the entire system will break. Here's the head of the National Air Traffic Controllers Association. I'm starting to see routine mistakes in clearances being made because controllers are distracted. That's scary. Routine mistakes. On the 35th day of that shutdown, 10 air traffic controllers in Virginia and Florida decided to stay home. Their absence temporarily shut down travel at New York's LaGuardia Airport and caused delays at other major hubs, according to the FAA. As CNN reported then, quote, their actions, along with staffing issues already brewing at the TSA, helped tip the scales in Washington, driving President Trump to agree to a three-week ceasefire. So what about the political fallout from that very long shutdown? The temporary funding measure Trump agreed to in January 2019, it did not include the billions of dollars in border wall funding Trump had been demanding and which had led to the shutdown in the first place. Three weeks later, Trump declared a national emergency to unlock the wall funding, even as he signed a spending bill from Congress that averted another shutdown. We're going to confront the national security crisis on our southern border, and we're going to do it one way or the other. We have to do it. Politically, Trump lost the shutdown fight. One poll found that more than half of Americans blamed Trump and the Republicans, after all of it, for the shutdown. Another poll found seven in 10 Americans didn't think the border wall was worth a shutdown. Now, if the government shuts down, it remains to be seen if Republicans will get blamed again. As for Trump's border wall, his political rivals, well, they're still dinging him for it, including just last night. 
He said he was going to build a wall across the whole border. He built 52 miles of wall and said Mexico would pay for it. Guess what? I think if Mexico knew that he was only going to build 52 miles, they might have paid for the 52 miles. So we're going to do it again. So let's shorthand this. No one wins in this. That's right. Only people lose. And it's not the people in Congress who are having these fights based on nothing that will eventually end with no wins. That's it's exactly real right. people. Yeah, they'd elect those people. Not that I have a personal opinion on this. To do their job. Really, really pointless and dumb. And keep the government running. So we're going to stay on this, of course. But the Republican presidential candidates, minus the frontrunner, last night took the stage in the second GOP debate. Who made an impact? Who was the target of most of the attacks? We have all that for you ahead. And President Biden will take on former President Trump today, calling him an ongoing threat to democracy ahead of a potential 2024 matchup. We're going to dig in on that big speech. That's ahead. 7 Republicans aiming to follow in Ronald Reagan's footsteps in the closing moments of their second debate of the Republican primary. Polls don't elect presidents. Voters elect presidents. This is our time for choosing. This is like a football game. You go on the field and you play to win. No one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. We're going to revive federalism in America. You see a young man who's in a bit of a hurry, a bit of a know-it-all, it seems, at times. Honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. America is not a racist country. Country. Never, ever doubt who we are. There's nothing from this debate that is going to push down Donald Trump's favorability. They're fighting for the bottom of the race right now. Clearly, this debate was a sign where these candidates are trying to emerge as the second place in this race against Donald Trump. Good morning, everyone. Top of the hour. We are so glad you're with us. I, we just heard the voice of our friend and colleague, Abby Phillip, there yep. saying they're they're in a race for the bottom, which is just so fascinating. And the question was, did they succeed in breaking through last night at all against Trump? I think the big question going into the night was, are they in the race to actually win the race? Or are they in the race for some other position? Abby suggests bottom, others suggest vice president. We're going to actually dig in and see yeah. what the takeaways were. Donald Trump's rivals fighting for the spotlight last night at that chaotic primary. Yet again, the GOP frontrunner was a no-show, and his opponents battled for a breakout moment. You said by the people. You can't be on both sides. I believe in these people. These are good people on the stage. Governor DeSantis, I'm going straight. Sir, we will have to cut your mic, and I don't want to do that. I don't. It's like my house at bed and bath time. The moderators had a hard time stopping the candidates from speaking over one another. Now, the candidates have been struggling to put a dent in Trump's significant lead. Vivek Ramaswamy and Ron DeSantis ended up having most of the speaking time. Border security, government spending, those were the two issues talked about the most on stage. Several candidates slammed Trump's record and his failure to show up. But overall, they didn't spend a lot of time talking about him or attacking the former president instead of debating. Trump was in Michigan. You see him there. He was speaking to auto workers, trying to upstage President Biden, who was there the day before. Trump joked that his primary opponents are running for a job in his future administration. And President Biden seemed focused on a likely rematch with Trump. He's set to give a big speech on democracy just hours from now, warning that, quote, something dangerous it's happening in America. There is an extremist movement. This is what he's going to say that does not share the basic beliefs of our democracy, the MAGA movement. Get to all of that ahead. Kyung Law joins us live from the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library after quite a debate where a lot of people talked over each other. And at points, it was hard to understand what they were even saying. 
Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And the bath time comment, Phil, 100% right. If you have kids, that's what it felt like at times because this was messy. It was loud and it was difficult to hear what they were saying at times from that debate stage. And if the goal here was to try to chip away at that enormously that Donald Trump has over this field, it's hard to see how that they accomplish that. A chaotic second GOP presidential debate with seven candidates all vying for second place behind Donald Trump, criticizing the front runner for not showing up. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that. No one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. The candidates invoked Trump's name more this time around, zeroing in on the economy and possible government shutdown. The people in Washington are shutting down the American dream with their reckless behavior. They borrowed, they printed, they spent, and now you're paying more for everything. They are the reason for that. And where's Joe Biden? He's completely missing in action from leadership. And you know who else is missing in action? Donald Trump is missing in action. He should be on this stage tonight. He owes it to you to defend his record. Pence took direct aim at the president's Bidenomics agenda. Joe Biden doesn't belong on a picket line. He belongs on the unemployment line. Bidenomics has failed. Wages are not keeping up with inflation. Auto workers and all American workers are feeling it. On the auto workers strike, a range of views and blame. They want four-day French work weeks, but more money. They want more benefits, working fewer hours. That is simply not going to stand. The reason why people are striking in Detroit is because Joe Biden's interference with capital markets and with free markets. The debate hit on many red meat issues for the Republican Party, including immigration and border security. Our laws are being broken every day at the southern border, every day. And Joe Biden and his crew is doing nothing about enforcing that law. Defund sanctuary cities. You see what's happening in Philadelphia right now. It's got to stop. We need to make sure we put 25,000 more Border Patrol and ICE agents on the ground and let them do their job. Well, if the kid of a Mexican diplomat doesn't enjoy birthright citizenship, then neither does the kid of an illegal migrant who broke the law to come here. Vivek Ramaswamy, who faced direct attacks during the first debate, was forced to defend his business record in China and his use of TikTok. I have a radical idea for the Republican Party. We need to win elections. And part of how we win elections is reaching the next generation of young Americans where they are. This is infuriating because TikTok <laughs> is one of the most dangerous social media apps yes, that is. we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. And the two candidates from South Carolina sparred over gas taxes in their home state and curtains. Nikki offered a 10 percent 10 cent gas tax increase in South Carolina. As the UN ambassador, you literally Bring it, put $50,000 on <laughs> curtains and a $15 million subsidized location. Next. You got bad information. First of all, I fought the gas tax in South Carolina multiple times. Secondly, on the uh, curtains, do your yes. homework, Tim, because Obama bought those curtains. Did you send them back? It's in the press. Did you send them back? It's the State Department. Did you send them Did back? Did you send them back? You're the one that works in Congress. Oh, my gosh. You get it You done. hung them on your, your, your curtains. I, they your were curtains. there before I even yeah. showed up at the yeah. residence. You here's, are scrapping. Here's a, 
Here's something you didn't hear after the debate. Any candidate saying that they were going to take their foot off the gas. From here, some of the candidates will be heading directly south to Orange County, California. Uh, Ramaswamy, DeSantis, and Scott will all be speaking at the California Republican Party Convention, which begins tomorrow. It will also feature Phil and Poppy, the big name in the room, Donald Trump. Yeah, there you go. He's important because he's leading by 30 or 40 points. <laughs> That's and, right. Young, very impressive being able to pull sound yeah. we could actually hear uh, as you went through <laughs> the debate last night. Kyung Law Force, and I like, thank you. So true. All right, Kyung, we'll get back to you soon. At the table with us, CNN political commentators Scott Jennings and Van Jones, Bloomberg senior Washington correspondent Talia Mosin and Josh Barrow back with us. All right, guys, thank you very much for being here. I was struck that Vivek Ramaswamy was different last night. He wasn't totally different, but he seemed to have gotten some feedback from the last one, which his polls went up. But just listen to this part of what he said last night. I'm here to tell you, no, I don't know it all. I will listen. I will have the best people, the best and brightest in this country, whatever age they are, advising me. Well, so what, here's what happened. A consultant said they don't like you. They think you're a know-it-all. You're off-putting. And you need to stop doing that. So the, he went out and then repeated those exact terms <laughs> that the <laughs> consultant said. And so, and so, but it does, here's the thing. When that's just who you are, it doesn't really work. And you saw him get a little spike after the last debate. It's come down. As soon as we turned the lights on on this guy, everybody was like, oh, my God. I mean, and, and watching Nikki Haley take him over her knee and spank him for the entire debate was about the most pleasurable thing can about I, this. Can I just television. say, though, because I think that was... It is morning television. It, it, was, <laughs> it was an important moment because it brought up some historical context that I wanted to show everybody. This is infuriating because TikTok <laughs> is one of the most dangerous social media apps yes, that is. we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response, were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought? Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. The best political consultant, <laughs> Billy Madison movies. <laughs> Dan, though, we laugh and joke, and honestly, that was the first thing when I heard it that yeah. came to my mind, which I'm not sure what that says about my youth and how I grew up and my influences. <laughs> we were talking last hour about you know, the attacks, some of which felt very forced, some of which are consultant-driven, as Scott is pointing out, versus where the party actually is, the actual policy issues itself, and does any of this break through. I think you're very frustrated about what you saw last night. Well, yeah, because um, you know, it, it's not just who winds up getting the nomination. It's it, what happens to the country along the way. And what I saw was a, a, a debate that was normalizing stuff that's really shocking. I mean, the idea that uh, you're going to attack the babies of immigrants, tell them you don't belong here, strip away their citizenship, that's a, that's a completely bonkers idea. It just went down like ice cream last night. Uh, the idea that you're going to abandon Ukraine, uh, the idea that you're going to uh, uh, make it impossible for people who are transgender to get medical care. These were, these were horrific ideas, not just bad ideas horrific ideas that are being mainstreamed in the process. So while we all you know, try to figure out, well, you know, is anybody going to get two points closer to Donald Trump before they get defeated? Uh, the country is, I think, getting uh, not, not just dumber, but worse uh, every one of these debates. 
on the economy, which is where Biden is polling so poorly right now, I, I didn't hear as forceful uh, attacks on how I will be different for you, what I can actually get through, et cetera, how your life will be materially different on that front. As much as I thought, Saleha, last night from them. I mean, there were some, some broad strokes, but a lot of those broad strokes were things that, no, they can't do alone as president. What was your take on that? I, I agree with you, Poppy. They So far, what we're seeing is a personality campaign, not a policy campaign coming from the debate stage. Uh, it was kind of a sideshow. The real news this week has been in Michigan, yeah. where the current and the former president have been to hear and address the economic situation. On that stage, it was a bit of a sideshow. We had seven candidates who, if you combine them in the national surveys, they don't even add up to be able to beat Trump together. So to that point, just let me play the sound from Trump in Michigan talking about them on the debate stage. Here it is. You know, we're competing with the job candidates. They're all running for a job. No, they're all job candidates. They want to be in the... Uh, they want to do anything. Secretary of something. They even say VP. I don't know. Does anybody see any VP in the group? I don't think so. I think what the next election will be about is the economy. And it's the current and the former president who went to Michigan to hear the economic woes. Everyone on stage, it was hard to hear anyone. They were fighting like children. The hosts were threatening to cut off their mics just to get some kind of uh, order on stage. No one was talking about the economy. So if you ask people from middle America, you're from Kentucky, I'm from Ohio, then people are saying all those men and that one woman, they're just fighting amongst each other. Mm -hmm. There are two real candidates who are talking about our wallets and our grocery store checkout. Josh, I want to tease this out a little bit because I mm -hmm. do think that the, the, both the contrast, but also just the picture of President Biden, former President Trump in Michigan in back-to-back -back days, President Biden today giving a speech on democracy, which I think is a through line from his first campaign yeah. through his first two and a half years in office and into 2024. Um, on the policy itself of economic policy, in Michigan, the difference between the two, not just in terms of the, what we saw on camera and kind of the messaging, but the policy here. Well, I mean, I think when we talk about that this is going to be a campaign about the economy, it's, it's really a campaign specifically about inflation. Unemployment is low right now. That is not doing a lot for the president's uh, approval on the economy. And it's because real wages were falling that's improved somewhat. Now they're about flat from a year ago, up a little bit, but not up a lot. People don't, they, they feel like they're working and they're not getting as much value as they used to. And I think the reason that that doesn't turn into a really more specific conversation is, first of all, it's fairly easy to just go up there and say, Joe Biden came in, inflation went out of control, look at, at all this stuff he did, I'll stop doing it, and inflation will go down. Now, that's not actually how it works. If they want to bring inflation down, they can raise taxes, they can cut spending, and if they start talking about specifically what they're going to cut spending on, that ends up being unpopular. They're going to repeal Obamacare. They didn't want to talk about that. Or they can raise interest rates even more. So when you, when you talk about specific things you would do about inflation, that's unpopular. But because inflation is just basically a mystery to, to most people, you can basically point out, first of all, Joe Biden did do certain things that, that did cause part of the inflation, including that the, the stimulus package we did in 2021 was too large. You can basically say, look, he screwed this up. I won't screw it up like that. I think the messaging there is fairly simple. And also, I, you know, I'd note this isn't just the leading political issue in the U.S. It's the leading political issue around the world. Governments are unpopular all over the place in Canada and the United Kingdom and Ireland, you, Germany. And it's, and it's because of this one issue that I think is dominating politics all around the world. Joe Biden needs to find a way to deal with that. But I'm not sure how specific the Republicans even need to get on the issue. You know, the fact that the president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve said to us on the show yesterday, 
to the American people, I said, what do you say to them? Do not take on more debt right now. That should be a warning to so many people about what the Fed may have to do here with interest rates. Jamie Dimon this week saying, worst case scenario, we hit 7%. This is the reality, Scott, that Americans need to brace themselves for as a possibility. Yeah. Not a surety, but a possibility. And it, I just didn't feel like that was directly addressed. Well, the, the format for addressing things like this is terrible. I mean, th this is a coliseum. I mean, they throw them out there, they pit them against each other. And it's more for entertainment than it is for addressing something really serious like, hey, you can't buy a car, you can't buy a house, you don't feel like you can afford any of the things you know that you it need to live. It takes 42 right weeks of full earnings in America right yeah. now to buy a car for Americans. And, and, and this 42 weeks. This, this debate is, and the way we set these people up and pit them against each other is not designed to deal with any of that, which is a travesty. I agree with, with Van about that. Uh, and, but I do agree with you that, that the two people who were talking the economy this week are, are Biden and Trump. And Trump's obviously already pivoted out of this and thinks this is all an academic sideshow. But it is what people want to hear because it is, the, it is the single thing that might reelect Donald Trump is this Biden has no answer on inflation. None. You can't show people charts and graphs when they don't feel like they can afford just a basic vehicle. A chart or a graph ain't going to fix that, that, uh, that gut instinct of anxiety that you have about, you know, am I going to be able to afford to live? Nodding. Yeah, um, I, I think a lot of what's going on, I, I agree with you 100%. Um, they were just fighting. They, 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 were, they would have embarrassed a, a high school teacher, a kindergarten teacher, how they were going back and forth. And they managed to diminish themselves. Like, you're supposed to be diminishing Donald Trump or whoever the front runner is. They just made each other. It was like the incredible shrinking candidate pool. So they went from maybe being cabinet secretaries to undersecretaries. And that's pretty much all they accomplished. Uh, meanwhile, I think people at home, like, you can't buy stuff. I mean, you literally, you're, you're, they're not wrong. You're taking stuff out of your basket. You go up there, you're like, holy crap, you go back. And so I do think that um, there's a deeper pain here. And Donald Trump could just be the alternative to the pain. Yeah. And just, I think that's what's going to be his, his I, I, you like what you got, stick with what you got, or you go with me. And if, he, if he's able to pull that off, you got a problem. Trump was a better candidate in 16. He was not the incumbent. He didn't have to answer for the decisions he had made, really. Now, he's not the president. He does have a record, but he's a better candidate outside in than inside out. And I don't think the Biden people understand yet just how effective he can be. That's the danger. It, it, it's, it's dangerous, and I, I don't think they get it yet. Coming up in just about 10 minutes, we have Chris Coons joining us, obviously a senator, but also uh, part of the Biden 2024 push. So we'll talk about all of that and a lot more ahead. Thank you for a very thoughtful discussion, guys. We appreciate it. Well, Senator John Fetterman's fits became a national outfits, to be clear, not <laughs> fits became a national flashpoint. Now the U.S. Senate passing in a unanimous vote legislation banning shorts and hoodies on the chamber's floor. We'll show you how Fetterman responded. It was apt. Also, the American soldier who ran into North Korea is now back on U.S. soil where he is headed now, what it took to get him back home. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back this morning. U.S. Army Private Travis King is back on American soil after being expelled from North Korea. King flew in on a military flight, which landed at Joint Base San Antonio overnight. He is a soldier who crossed into North Korea during a tour of the demilitarized zone. This was in July. And just before that, 
King was released from a South Korean detention facility after an alleged assault at a Seoul nightclub. Warren Lieberman has been following all of this. He joins us from the Pentagon. Warren, good morning. This trip to get him home took an assist from a number of countries. How did he get back here? It did, and it's one of those rare, very rare situations, I would say, where you see senior administration officials thanking China for their role in helping all of this. It was Sweden that acted effectively as the intermediary between the U.S. and North Korea after North Korea made the decision to expel, in their words, Private Travis King after concluding their investigation of him. But why exactly they chose to expel him or what the investigation found, that all remains unclear. What is clear is that King was on his way out of North Korea. A Swedish convoy brought him to the Friendship Bridge, and that's the bridge between North Korea and China, where the U.S. defense attaché to China met him, and that began his journey home from China to South Korea, and then back to what you're looking at here. That is him landing at Joint Base San Antonio just a few hours ago, about six hours ago, after some 70 days in North Korean detention. He has had a chance to talk to his family, according to senior administration officials who briefed reporters on this whole process, and he'll be taken to Joint Base San Antonio, where he'll go to Brook Army Medical Center for a medical evaluation. That's where those who have been in detention are brought to reacclimate and make sure they're doing okay. That, for example, is where Brittany Griner and Trevor Reed were brought after they were released from detention by Russia. The question, what happens now, Poppy? The military officials had said he could be brought up on military charges for being absent without leave, but that remains unclear, and we're not getting a definitive answer on whether or when that might happen. And why he was expelled and allowed to come back to the United States. So many questions. Oren, thank you for all the reporting. Phil. Well, this morning, House Republican hardliners are defiant in refusing to work with Democrats. Their speaker is following suit with only two days left to reach a spending deal and avert a government shutdown. Now, they are demanding cuts that won't pass a Democratic-controlled Senate. And the House Rules Committee actually had to call an emergency meeting overnight to strip $300 million in Ukraine aid from the annual defense spending bill. This has been long existing funding. Meanwhile, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is standing by the bipartisan agreement he worked out with Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and top appropriators, which House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says will not get a vote in his chamber without significant changes. CNN's Lauren Fox live on Capitol Hill with more. Lauren, is there any optimism at this point with two plus days left and the clock continuing to tick down that there is any outcome besides a shutdown? If you ask aides, if you ask members, Phil, on Capitol Hill who have been close to these shutdowns in the past, they will tell you they do not know how this ends. Here is veteran appropriator Tom Cole and what he told me yesterday when I pressed him on whether or not Americans waking up Monday would be assured that there would not be a shutdown. Obviously, we've got our challenges here as well, and the two chambers are a long way apart. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, I'm not at all confident we won't end up in a shutdown. And Tom Cole would know he has been through many of these showdowns in the past, Phil. But here's what you're going to see over the next couple of days play out. The House, Repre the House of Representatives is going to continue to try to move on individual spending bills. These bills are going nowhere in the Senate. They would not prevent a government shutdown. But that is where House Republicans are focused right now because you have hardliners demanding that Speaker McCarthy brought these bills to the floor. The hope from leadership is that as members start to see these bills are failing or are not going to stop a shutdown, that they will start to rally around a short-term solution. But so far, Phil, that just has not happened. And as you noted, we are now two days and 16 hours away from that shutdown.
Yeah, no, no rush, guys. Uh, plenty of time. Uh, I, Lauren, I do want to ask you before I let you go. Uh, Senator Bob Menendez, who was indicted last week, is expected to speak behind closed doors to the Senate Democratic Caucus. Uh, I think there's now more than 30 Democrats have called for him to step down. What do we expect him to say? Yeah, Phil, this is a really important meeting for Senator Menendez. And to this point, Menendez has been defiant, saying that he will not step aside, that he deserves the presumption of innocence. But as you noted, there are now 30 of his Democratic colleagues who have called for him to resign, including the number two Democrat, Senator Dick Durbin, and his fellow New Jersey Democrat, Cory Booker. So this is going to be a very key and important meeting for Senator Menendez as he faces many of his colleagues who have called for him to step down. Phil. All right. Lauren Fox, great reporting as always. Thank you. Poppy. President Biden, a prime target during the debate last night. Today, he's expected to send a dire warning about the state of democracy with a key focus on the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump, who skipped the debate. One of the president's closest allies, Democratic Senator Chris Coons, is here next. Welcome back. Well, today, President Biden heads to Arizona, where he will make a speech warning about the ongoing threats to democracy. He will reportedly highlight Donald Trump's role in those threats. He is expected, Biden, that is, to say in part, quote, there's something dangerous happening in America. There is an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs of our democracy, the MAGA movement. At the same time, the House Oversight Committee will hold its first hearing in the Biden impeachment investigation, where they will also discuss... The, the Constitution, Chairman James Comer says a constitutional expert is going to testify today as to why he thinks an impeachment investigation is justified. And last night, Biden was one of the chief targets of attacks at the second Republican presidential debate. Listen. Joe Biden should not be on the picket line. He should be on the southern border working to close our southern border because it is unsafe, wide open and insecure. Bidenomics has failed. Wages are not keeping up with inflation. Auto workers and all American workers are feeling it. Families are struggling in this economy. And Joe Biden's Green New Deal agenda is good for Beijing and bad for Detroit. The reason why people are striking in Detroit is because Joe Biden's interference with capital markets and with free markets. The subsidies, we're subsidizing the automakers, we're particularly we're subsidizing electric vehicles. Joining us now to respond to all of that, one of the president's closest allies, Democratic Senator Chris Kuhn. Senator, good morning. Thank you for being morning, here. Bobby. It wasn't just them. We heard the former president, Trump, in Detroit also railing against President Biden on EVs. Here he was. He's selling you out to China. He's selling you out to the environmental extremists and the radical left. Income he is he is saying that the Biden administration policies on electric vehicles and these subsidies will ultimately lead to American job losses. Can the Biden administration guarantee it won't? Well, Poppy, let's look at the record. Um, when President Trump was in office, we lost manufacturing jobs. In the first two years of the Biden administration, our private sector created more than 800,000 manufacturing jobs. The first two years of the Biden administration actually had the strongest job creation record in decades, more than 13 million new jobs. And we've had unemployment at its lowest level for the longest time in our lifetime. So frankly, I think the best predictor of what's going to happen 
in the coming years, if President Biden's reelected, is what's already happening. A very strong economy compared to every other advanced economy, right. every developed ally of ours. Our economy is in very strong shape. That now, folks may not be feeling it yet. But the investments we've made in infrastructure, in manufacturing and growing our economy are paying off and the numbers show it. It is an important record, the numbers you point out. However, some of the requirements for electric vehicles on the roads and these subsidies aren't, weren't fully in place then. I'm talking about now, given this administration's stance. Is it a guarantee from the administration that they will not cost those American jobs in the auto sector? Look, in a global competition for who's going to be building the automobiles of this century, uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats in Congress have made a critical strategic bet, a bet that the economy is going to follow a clean energy future globally. Uh, that's what our competitors in Europe and in Japan uh, and in China are doing. All of their automakers are transitioning rapidly to electric vehicles. Uh, and in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, we laid the groundwork for that, not with mandates, but with incentives, with tax incentives that are part of why you're seeing record groundbreakings in new battery factories, new automobile factories, uh, and new manufacturing-related construction here in the United States. In fact, uh, I've been in meetings in Europe where our close allies and partners uh, in the fight uh, to help Ukraine regain their territory have complained bitterly that we in the United States are rocketing ahead of them and creating a risk uh, of their major industrial companies choosing to move to the United States. So I'm optimistic about this. Uh, and frankly, if you look back to when the auto industry was in bankruptcy, was nearing collapse in the United States in 0809, it was then Vice President Joe Biden who fought hard to save the American auto industry. He was on the picket lines yesterday because he believes in the American worker, the American middle class and the American auto industry. I spent many, many weeks in Detroit covering that. And a lot of what the workers lost then is what they're fighting for now. Turning to the president's speech today, notable he's going to give that speech near Arizona State University, of course, that houses the McCain Institute, McCain, the late John McCain, a friend of Biden's, who denounced autocrats around the globe. So the, 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 the place is very intentional. In terms of the address and what he's going to do, this battle between democracy and autocracy, it's a phrase he used a lot. He's used it less this year. As you know, the New York Times pointed out, quote, Biden and other administration officials have come to think that framing comes with downsides. He didn't use it, for example, when he addressed the United Nations General Assembly. Do you believe there are downsides? Well, in talking to the United Nations General Assembly, uh, our president cited the U.N. Charter uh, and the basic rule that you shouldn't change boundaries between countries by force. Uh, that has broad appeal to the nations assembled at the United Nations. But the United States is a democracy, and we stand up for and fight for democracy around the world. Uh, our millions of armed forces members who are serving at home and abroad understand a key part of their service, defending America to be defending our constitution and defending our democracy. Uh, that's why, Poppy, I am so upset and disappointed that we're just two days from a government shutdown that would make every one of our service members continue to serve without being paid. That sort of instability and insecurity for our armed forces is just a, a, a horrible I, message to yes. send the world about the defense of our democracy. Every American deserves a government that is up and open and, and functioning. There's no question on that. 
When it comes to this approach the president is taking, anti-MAGA, you know, democracy versus autocracy, it was notable that you told CNN, you told our colleague Manaraju last week, that, quote, the polls head-to-head, meaning Biden-Trump, are more concerning than I would expect. Why do you think, given that, the president is not doing better? Well, look, his record is very strong, as you were just agreeing with me. His record of job creation, his record of standing up. I said uh, to the Russian statistics are important to lay out. But continue, Senator. His record is very strong. And I'm frankly not that concerned about the current polls. If you look back at where Barack Obama stood in the polls in 2011, in 2007, uh, it at that point, head to head, was predicting he would lose to Mitt Romney. In 2011, he would lose to Rudy Giuliani in 2007. Even Ronald Reagan, uh, nearing this point in his first term, was at real, um, had a very low approval rating and facing significant headwinds and calls for him to not run for re-election. So early head-to-head polls, I don't think are predictive. Okay. What I was saying to Manu was that given the president's very strong record on the economy, on our place in the world, on restoring a commitment to democracy and the guardrails that are critical um, to our constitution and our order here in the United States, I would expect he would be doing better. But if if I had to choose between a very strong record of accomplishment in his first two years as president and polls that are lagging or being really strong in the polls, having accomplished almost nothing, I'd prefer what President Biden and Vice President Harris have, which is a tremendous record of accomplishment, investing in community mental health, signing into law the strongest gun safety bill in 30 years and reducing unemployment to record lows. Senator, before you go, you are the chair of the Ethics Committee. We have not heard you on the record yet about whether you think Senator Menendez should resign given the fraud allegations in the indictment. Do you believe he should resign? As the chairman of the Ethics Committee, I cannot comment on any matter that is or may be before the committee. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Senator Chris Coons. Thank you, Poppy. Phil. Chris Christie and Mike Pence, they join us ahead to talk about last night's debate and their attacks on Donald Trump. He wasn't even on the stage. And police in Baltimore have arrested a convicted felon suspected of killing a tech executive. The details of that capture coming up next. She was the definition of daddy's little girl. She turned from being daddy's little girl into being a girl boss. New this morning, an important development on a story we were following yesterday. The suspect in the murder of a 26-year-old tech CEO in Baltimore is now in police custody. Pavel Lepera was found dead Monday, having suffered blunt force trauma. I want to get straight to CNN's Omar Jimenez. What do we know, Omar, at this point? The, the concerns were, I think, palpable from law enforcement. What do we know about the suspect? They really were. I mean, this was someone the Baltimore City mayor called extremely dangerous. And it was in the overnight hours that 32-year-old Jason Billingsley was arrested, as we understand, by Baltimore police. They tracked him to a train station in Bowie, Maryland, according to one of our uh, affiliates. And look, this is someone who is suspected of killing 26-year-old Pavel LaPere. She was a tech CEO for a Baltimore-based company. This was something that really shook that community. And while police were searching for Billingsley, a vigil was being held for LaPere, a vigil that included her father, who told the the crowd that was there that this was someone who was like him, an early riser who he would talk to in those early morning hours. She was the definition of daddy's little girl. Um, She had me wrapped and still does. 
she turned from being daddy's little girl into being a girl boss. <laughs> and she treated me the same way. <laughs> she was 26 years old, just named to Forbes 30 Under 30 for social impact this past year. Now, as for the man suspected of killing her, we learned Baltimore police. He was actually a suspect in a separate attempted murder, rape, and arson case that happened just last week, about a mile from where LaPere's body was found. So they're looking into that. But also, he has a history. He was charged with assault, pleaded guilty to assault in 2009, 2011, was sentenced to 30 years in prison in 2015. But as we understand, it was released in 2022 under mandatory supervision. At least that's what officials told the New York Times. And so since he's been released, police are now pouring over all these cases to see if he's connected to anything else they may have missed. Yeah. Uh, heartbreaking from her father, Omar. Appreciate it, as always. Thanks. Poppy? So this morning, Ukraine is working to get the full picture of the damage caused by what it is calling a massive Russian drone attack overnight. And last night, the GOP presidential candidates sparred on the debate stage on how the country should handle the war in Ukraine. We'll ask former National Security Advisor to President Trump, John Bolton, about those candidates' plans. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Overnight, Russia launching a massive attack, drone attack, on the southern city of Odessa. That is according to Ukraine's military spokesperson in the region, who also said that Ukraine's air defense was successful in destroying more than 30 drones. This comes after the U.K.'s defense minister met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in a surprise visit to Kyiv to show their support for the country. Back in the United States, that same support was not shared by all the Republican candidates on the debate stage last night. It's in our interest to end this war, and that's what I will do as president. We are not going to have a blank check. Our national vital interest is in degrading the Russian military. Just because Putin is not an ev- Putin's an evil dictator does not mean that Ukraine is good. This is a country that has banned 11 opposition parties. A win that has for actually, Russia is a that win is not for true. China. We're driving a win Russia. For Russia excuse, is me, a win ex- for China. excuse me. Excuse me. Vivek, if you let Putin have Ukraine, that's a green and light to China to take Taiwan. Joining us now, former Trump National Security Advisor, former Ambassador to the United Nations, John Bolton. Ambassador, thank you for being with us at the table this morning. It's stark, the change in its particularly Republican support, uh, not just the candidates, but just Republican voters across the country, for more aid for Ukraine. Looking as recently as July, 59% of Republicans say, U.S. has done enough. What changed? Well, I think there are not enough Republican political leaders explaining the strategic reasons why uh, the United States should not only aid Ukraine, but get to victory over the Russians. Frankly, Biden isn't doing a very good job either. And I think a lot of this has turned into a kind of partisan battle uh, because it's a Democratic president. My, My strong belief is if we got a responsible Republican nominee, which is open to question at this point, and he became president, Republican support uh, for Ukraine would solidify and it would be the Democratic progressives who would break off. You think it's just political? I think a lot of it is political. I haven't heard from the Republican or Democratic opponents of aid to Ukraine a single strategic argument. They, they come up with bumper stickers and non sequiturs like uh, Biden won't defend our border with Mexico. Why should we wor- worry about the Ukraine's border with Russia, which is a, a total non sequitur and translated says, well, we're failing at the Mexican border. Let's fail with the Ukrainian border, too. You have to look at this from what the best interest of the United States is. 
peace and stability in Europe and preventing aggression on that continent and around the world uh, helps the United States. We're not doing this out of charity for the Ukrainians. We're doing it in our national interest. And politicians have to say that. They have to justify it to the American people, and they're not doing it. It's been striking that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has been one of those, I think, mm-hmm. every one single day few. on this Senate That's floor right. making this case. His counterpart in the House uh, is certainly in a very different spot because of his conference. I do want to ask you, though, uh, about something that happened with former President Trump, uh, a social media posting where he essentially called for the execution of Mark Milley, the uh, retiring chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Milley responded on CBS. Why don't you take a listen? much as these comments are directed at me, it's also directed at the institution of the military. Um, and there's, there's 2.1 million of us in uniform. Are you worried about your safety? I've got adequate safety precautions. I, I wish those comments had not been made, but they were. And we'll take appropriate measures to ensure my safety and the safety of my family. What's your response when you see that? Well, what Trump said about Milley, what he said about investigating uh, NBC for treason in another recent social post are absolutely disqualifying. And every Republican candidate for president should say that. Anybody who makes those kinds of comments demonstrates that they're not fit to be president. Uh, And the fact that there aren't enough Republicans saying that I find very troubling. I think if there's going to be a successful challenge to Donald Trump, which I haven't seen emerge yet, it's got to be from somebody who talks sense to Republican voters, reminds them of Ronald Reagan uh, and, and, uh, and his attitudes, not Donald Trump's. This is a debate we're still not having. And I have to say, with all due respect to the television and other media, these performances like last night are not debates. They're made for TV. They don't add to the discussion. You can't have a sensible conversation about national security in 60 seconds. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's more about TV than it is about the candidates. Who remembers who the moderators were in the Lincoln-Douglas debates? You know, there weren't any moderators in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. So, so if you want to have real debates, I'm looking forward to Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom and have the two of them face off. Let's end these charades uh, because it doesn't help the people make up their mind. We have you at the table, so really want to get your take on Travis King, the U.S. Army private who crossed into North Korea willingly. Then all of a sudden we learned yesterday morning that North Korea has had, in their words, expelled him. We didn't know where he was going to be 24 hours ago. Now he's back in the United States. Here's an exchange between our colleague uh, Alex Marquardt and uh, Matt Miller at the State Department on the questions surrounding this. This was yesterday. We did not give them anything. We made no concessions as a part of securing his return. Do you have any idea why they decided to suddenly expel him? I am going to follow my general here and not try to to get into the heads of foreign governments and certainly not not that one. Would would North Korea expel him without any concessions? Well, I think obviously we don't we don't know what was uh, on North Korea's mind. It's possible that they uh, originally saw this attempted defection as a propaganda coup that they could turn Travis King, make him a public spokesman against the United States. It may be that once he got into North Korea, uh, this young man realized he had just made his life's worst mistake uh, and wasn't going to cooperate. But but why they just didn't throw him in a cell somewhere in the middle of North Korea and let him rot, I don't know. So. Uh, I I haven't given up yet on the prospect that there's some hook in here that we haven't seen. So I think uh, diligent reporters ought to be uh, scurrying around trying to find out. We don't know the full story yet. But Alex was trying to get to there. Yeah, Yeah, I think they will still. Uh, Ambassador John Bolton, we appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, the candidates trading attacks on the debate stage and even taking aim at the front runner who, once again, wasn't even there. 
Donald, I know you're watching. You can't help yourself. I know you're watching. So you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. We're going to speak to Republican candidate Chris Christie and the Donald Duck moment in just a moment. Later, Mike Pence will join us as well. Stay with us. A lot to come. It was the current Republican frontrunner who took center stage by his absence. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. We've got to choose right, we've got to win, and we need somebody that's going to be able to serve two terms. Go picket in front of the White House in Washington, D.C. That's really where the protest needs to be. A nation without borders is not a nation. And we have to secure the southern border. A win that has for actually, Russia is a that win is not for China. China. China is the real enemy. As the U.N. ambassador, you literally bring it in. You got bad information. A gas tax increase, and then you rather than creating clarity, it creates more of a muddle for voters. There's going to be a lot of pressure to kick somebody off the island. Seven candidates were on stage, but the one who was not, Donald Trump, may have benefited the most of all. Morning, everyone. It is the top of the hour. We're glad you're with us, especially if you stayed up late watching the debate last night. At the end, no one wanted to vote anyone else on the stage off the island as they tried to get well, one them person to. did. One person did. And we're going to talk to him shortly, <laughs> right, like five minutes. Most of them did not want to. Yet again, the GOP's frontrunner, Donald Trump, was not there. He wasn't on the stage. Today, Trump will be the focus of a major speech by President Biden as they head toward a likely rematch for 2024. Biden will be sending a stark warning about Trump's looming threat to democracy. Meanwhile, House Republicans are set to hold the first hearing of their impeachment investigation. And this is all happening with the government shutdown just days away, two days away to be precise, and the government running out of money. A big day ahead in politics as we have a lot to get to this morning. Let's begin with Harry Enten. Harry, good morning. Morning. Biden focused on Trump as his likely opponent. What did the polls show? Yeah, I mean, look, if we if we look at last night's debate, who was the most searched candidate on Google? It was Donald Trump, who was 2,000 miles away. And, you know, he was 2,000 miles away, yet he was the most searched candidate. And here's the big reason why. Look at this. Who are the top choices for the GOP nominee? Donald Trump. 58% going into that debate, well ahead of the rest of the political pack on the Republican side. Of course, I think there was a real question going in as well about Vivek Ramaswamy, who of course was the top choice, or excuse me, the top most searched candidate in the first debate. Where did he land in the second debate? Well, he landed here. He was the second most candidate uh, during the debate, and he was often attacked. And, and I believe we have some sound of that attack. Let's listen to it. This is infuriating because TikTok is one of the most dangerous social media apps yes, that is. we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. I think we would be better served as a Republican Party if we're not sitting here hurling personal insults and actually have a legitimate debate I, I, about policy. You know, Harry, I listened to that. Uh, I'm really appreciated the Nikki Haley thing because of references to past lives. But the um, <laughs> no, but the idea of Ramaswamy going back and forth, there's a shift in the tone. And I was wondering what that did. You're talking about who was most searched up the first debate, second debate. Where does this leave him at this point? Yeah, I think there are a few things that are going on. First off, if you noticed, 
And as I said, a lot of folks were attacking Vivek Ramaswamy, and it does seem to have made an impact. It wasn't just last night. It was in the lead up to last night. And, you know, before the first debate, we saw Ramaswamy seem to have some momentum in the polls, right? He was up to 9%. He had started at 0%. But look where he is now. He's at just 5%. And it seems to me that a lot of Republicans are recognizing how to attack Vivek Ramaswamy. You know, you heard in that clip about TikTok. Do Republicans think that TikTok is a threat to America's national security? Look at this. 70% of Republicans say, yes, it is. And so I think there's going to be some more attacks on Ramaswamy going forward if they believe he's a threat between Trump and those other candidates. It's problematic for your dance career on TikTok as well. Just want to lay that uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, that's why I'm going to stick to Instagram. Appreciate it, buddy. Thanks. Important numbers. Uh, Harry Anton, thank you as always. Poppy. So in Trump's absence, Chris Christie took the time to address the no-show frontrunner directly. Donald, I know you're watching. You can't help yourself. I know you're watching, okay? And you're not here tonight, not because of polls and not because of your indictments. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. Joining us now, someone who did not duck the debate, Governor of New Jersey, former Governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie. Good, good morning, Governor. Good morning, Poppy. How are you? Good. Thank you. We watched you do that last night. Um, but Trump doesn't seem to be affected at all in the polling. I'll grant you where he is in New Hampshire, but, but more broadly, by not showing up at these debates. Why should he attend if he feels like he's got these voter support anyways? Well, first off, as you and I have gone back and forth any number of times, I, I can tell you that national polls just don't matter because we don't have a national primary. Um, and in New Hampshire, Trump is well below 40 percent, uh, and I'm gaining on him, as are a number of other candidates. Um, but the reason he belongs there is much bigger than polls um, or his, you know, 91 counts of indictment. Um, he owes it to the Republican Party voters to show up. He owes, them to, owes it to them to show up because there were a lot of questions on that stage last night about his record and a lot of accusations about his record and his failures as the president of the United States. And if he wants the job back, he needs to make those arguments. And he's unwilling to show up because he's afraid. He's afraid to defend that record. And all the other bluster and his fake rally yesterday in Detroit where they were bringing in, you know, Trump volunteers to act as if they were auto workers. Um, it's just another part of the scam, the grift, the fraud that is Donald Trump and his campaign. Uh, Governor, you'll, I'm sure, be shocked to know that the former president uh, has responded to you on uh, Truth Social, saying, in part, Chris Christie is talking about the job he did as governor. He had a 9% approval rating. New Jersey wanted to throw the bum out. Talks about his border wall and the safest and best border in U.S. history. Your response to that? Uh, well... Look, the guy said, uh, and I was on the stage when he did it, um, that he was going to build a big, beautiful wall across the entire border of the United States and Mexico, and Mexico was going to pay for it. And, and you, all you need to do is go to the website and take a look, the government website, and it shows 52 miles of new wall. He rebuilt some other parts of wall, but new wall, 52 new miles. At that pace, he'd only need 110 more years as president to finish the wall. And Mexico didn't pay for it. And I had some fun last night by saying, if Mexico knew that we were only going to build 52 new miles a wall um, under Donald Trump, maybe they would have paid for 52 new miles. I mean, this is a guy who is a snake oil salesman. Um, and all he does all the time is either lie about what he's done 
or lie about what he hasn't done. Uh, and I think that the American people are going to get tired of it as we get towards uh, voting. Remember, um, no voting is going to happen here until January 15th in Iowa and then soon thereafter in New Hampshire. Uh, and uh, we'll be ready to take him out when that moment comes. Governor, you brought up uh, Trump's speech in Detroit last night. He and the president went to talk to, to auto workers and show that there's a lot of focus on the UAW strike. I'm interested in whether you agree with President Biden, who said yes yesterday when he was asked if he supports a 40 percent wage increase for the union auto workers. Do you support that wage increase? No, I don't support a 40 percent wage increase, Poppy. Why? Well, let me tell you what I do support. I support. I, well, I'm going to tell you what I do support. And since I don't support that, because I think it's too much. But what I will tell you is that I think people should be paid based upon how hard they work, their expertise and the excellence they bring to their job every day. And I think the union is hurting itself by asking to be paid for a 40 hour work week and only work 32 hours. I think they're hurting themselves in that direction. American people want them to be paid and to be paid fairly and competitively, but they don't want them to be paid for not working. And so those kind of demands color that 40% request for an increase um, and color it in a bad way. Um, I want them to be paid a competitive wage and I want them to be paid a wage that helps them to support their families in the, in the style which they want to become accustomed to and deserve to become accustomed to. But 40% is too high. Okay. Nobody in, in, this, in this country is getting that. And, Poppy, one last thing. You know, we wouldn't be needing well, the, the CEOs, governor, the CEOs of the, for the fact that Joe Biden's inflation. We're going to get on to other topics, but the CEOs of, of those auto companies are getting that kind of raise. That's what it's based on over the last four years. But we'll, we'll move on. Governor, what I wanted to ask you, um, I, I followed you around New Hampshire in 2016. Uh, I know New Hampshire was a focus back then. It's a focus now as well. The analogs are starting to feel a little bit more palpable, not about you specifically, but about a big race, a big field, and people refusing to drop out, and therefore nobody coalesces. Have you had discussions with either other candidates or Republicans outside the campaign space about uh, having people drop out? Should people be dropping out right now? I love the fact that guys uh, in the media like you, and you know, Phil, I like you, but you know, you guys who have never run for anything um, want to tell everybody when they're going to supposed to drop out. I mean, you know, the fact is that this campaign is competitive, and that's why I thought last night, um, you know, everybody up there was trying to make the best argument they possibly could to try to distinguish their candidacy. I'll tell you this, people will drop out when money runs out. People will drop out when they don't see any pathway to winning. Um, I'm in second place in New Hampshire, um, so you can bet your rear end I'm not dropping out. That's no, but Governor, sure. I'm not talking about um, you specifically. What I'm, saying is that, what I'm saying is, if given where you are and where you think you are and where you think you can be, if there are six other people in this race, you have a problem coalescing the support that you would need to overtake over time. That, that's just a reality, I think, and you're a pretty politically savvy individual. Well, I'm wondering it, it, if you've talked to <laughs> other people about getting out of the race. I am. No, I have not approached any of the other candidates and asked them to get out of the race. And, and for anybody who's actually run for office, they know that's not the way it works. People have to come to their own conclusion about that. If one of your competitors comes up to you and says, hey, drop out so it makes it easier for me to win, um, that usually is not the right way to approach it. Folks need to come to their own conclusions and their own reality about their own situation. Um, what I would say is this. It is a lot better situation than it was eight years ago when you tried to make that analogy. At this point, eight years ago, 
at the Reagan Library debate, there were still 17 people in the race. There are now seven this time. Give it some time. You all want to rush all this. You want to run polls that rush all of us to get out of the race. You want Trump-Biden? Then we should all drop out now. Um, but then we see that 70% of the American people don't want Trump-Biden. So why don't we take the time to run a real campaign? I've been in this race for three months. And look, I think when people look at that debate stage last night, Phil, you know, what they see is if I wasn't up there, no one would be taking on Donald Trump directly um, and, and honestly on not just his failure to be there and his failures uh, in defending our Constitution, but his failure substantively as president of the United States. And now the RNC has upped the requirements 40 percent. You need 40 percent more donors between now and November 8th to stay on that stage. You want somebody who's going to fight Trump on that stage? All your viewers should go to ChrisChristie.com, donate a dollar um, to make sure that I stay on that stage. Because if I don't, no one else is going to make the case against Trump. They all want to be in his cabinet. Governor, last night when you were speaking about education and teachers unions, you took a swipe at the first lady, Dr. Jill Biden. Here's that moment. When you have the president of the United States sleeping with a member of the teachers union, there is no chance that you could take the stranglehold away from the teachers union every day. They have an advocate inside the White House every day for the worst of their teachers, not for our students to be the best they can be. Why did you say that that way? Because uh, I, like other people, have looked at the most recent book that was put out about President Biden. And it talks very, very specifically about how uh, Jill Biden um, told Randy Weingarten, I told you you'd have an advocate here in the White House for you starting on day one when they moved into the White House. Um, that's the history. Jill Biden has been a radical advocate for the worst in the teachers union. And that's why I brought it up, because no one else is willing to. No one else is willing to say it. But the truth is that Jill Biden is advocating for the worst, for keeping schools closed during COVID, despite the fact that her husband said that he would have them open within 100 days of his presidency. And he and didn't do that because of the pressure from his wife and from Randy Weingarten. All, all topics that are worth addressing. My question to you was the wording that you chose to use. A number of people. Well, that's the truth, isn't just it? Just women waking up this morning or watching last night found it concerning. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeting it is disgusting, Why? misogynistic, and if Republicans want to continue yeah. pissing off an entire nation of women, please be my guest. So just, but you're standing by the wording. I just wanted to ask you. I, I am standing by the wording, and let me tell you, being called disgusting by a hypocrite like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is probably the highlight of my day so far. And since it's only about 4.45 in the morning out here, um, that's great to have a highlight this early. Let her accuse me of whatever she wants. When you look at the kind of hypocrite that she is, the kind of things that she does and lives her life as, as opposed to what comes out of her mouth, uh, please, I'd be happy to be accused of uh, anything by uh, AOC. Governor Chris Christie, it is early there. Thank you for getting up early to talk to us. We'll see you soon. Is, I didn't even know what time it was exactly. 5.14, you were I close. that early? You right. were close. Thank you. Yeah, not bad. Not bad. See you later. 
Well, Nikki Haley taking aim at the Republican frontrunner who skipped the debate last night, how the Trump campaign responded overnight. Also, senators unanimously passing a resolution officially requiring business attire on the floor. This is after Senator John Fetterman's casual dress became a flashpoint in the Capitol. His office's one meme statement is ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Ron DeSantis is against fracking. He's against drilling. He's been against. You did it. At 12 years, where have you been? Where have you been, Tim? 12 years. We've waited and nothing has happened. A win for Russia is a win for China. A win for Russia is a win for China. Excuse me, if you have a chance. I forgot you like China. That's why you're You'll have, you'll have. Nikki Haley going after several of her opponents on stage last night. Haley's been rising in the polls since the first debate. She wanted to keep that momentum going. We'll see if it does. It appears the Trump campaign is now paying attention. They sent out an email last night late attacking Haley and her record. Let's talk about what happened and a lot more with CNN senior political commentator David Axelrod, CNN anchor Audie Cornish, CNN senior political commentator Adam Kinzinger. Morning, everyone. Um, Audie, they wanted to be sort of in the mold of Reagan, right? The Reagan National Library, et cetera. Um, you say, nope, they were in the shadow of Trump. I mean, it's very hard to have these conversations about Reagan at this point. I mean, Adam can probably think of, talk to this more, but, you know, the person who granted amnesty or the person who, like, fired air traffic controllers. Yeah, but not much of what they had to say is actually within the realm of that era of conservatism. And so what you had was a lot of people bickering about nonsense because the stakes were really low. It's not clear that there is a cohesive, cohesive coherent post-Trump policy. And if it is in existence, it wasn't on stage. Yeah, the starkest thing was on Ukraine. I mean, can you imagine what Ronald Reagan would have said yeah. uh, about some of the things that were said about Ukraine on there? But I think the big, uh, the big loser last night was whoever had to operate the closed caption machine, because <laughs> how do you distinguish between all those people yelling at each other? But I don't think it was a lack of urgency or, 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 or stakes that uh, created that. I think it was the opposite. I think time's wasting here, and, so, and they're all vying to be the breakout yes. person. Yes, stakes for themselves, not the country, yes. <laughs> right? Like, all the right. urgency granted. was there for them. Gr granted. granted. What you saw is the echoes of a party that, in, in, let's say about half the candidates up there, the Tim Scotts, the Nikki Haley's, the Chris Christie's, echoes of a party that I kind of feel an affection for still. But that party is not the zeitgeist of the party anymore. The Republican Party, I mean, 58% of Republicans support Donald Trump. Of the candidates up there, a good half of them probably will default to Donald Trump if their candidate of choice, you know, if Ron DeSantis was out. So it's a concern. I'm glad there were people like Nikki Haley up there, like Chris Christie, who are going to tell the truth. This is a, this is a message that for those of us that, that still kind of believe that someday the GOP can be what it was again, or I hate even looking back, something different, but like less, you know, dark, um, I, that, those are the messages that need to get out. But what I saw last night was Tim Scott going after Nikki Haley, and they were each hitting each other on completely asinine issues that nobody cares about, $50,000 curtains and some vote in the Senate. Um, and I they saw, know each other. They have, like, campaigned yeah. well, side he, by he, side. Yeah, they personal. served in yeah, the legislature. Yeah, it's just like, what is this? It got, it got creepy personal in a way. Uh, Chris Christie, I think, was a truth teller. Pence, I didn't even know he was up there. It's, it's not going to change anything. Vivek, I, by the way, though, I, I, 
I did love seeing Nikki Haley say that we all are dumber now. For you mean, quote, him. Billy Madison, as yeah, Phil was pointing yeah, out to me yeah, this morning. It was perfect. Used to accept it was perfect. otherwise. Good job. Is at, yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, on the Nikki Haley point, David and I were talking, I think this was yesterday. Uh, the days are very long yeah, at yeah. this point when you have debates and, and things like that. that. This was a moment. Nikki Haley had, had some momentum coming out of the last debate. We played the sound with her. She was clearly willing to fight and battle. Um, is it, it? This is the thing I can't quite get my head around. Is it? it is it enough? And is, I know where you're going with this, and yeah. I want to stop you because it almost feels irrelevant. Like, I actually found Trump's... Me or the... the question. Never, <laughs> never. I'm sorry, because I think Trump's speech was far more interesting bit of counter-programming because he was talking, he was doing a general election pivot in a way that I think was striking. Going to Michigan, trying to reach out to Reagan Democrats, right? That's right. being in the shadow of Reagan, and trying to create a wedge between union leadership and union members and trying to stake out some ground for that particular voter. That's looking to the general election. He also, in his comments, said, do you see a VP on stage? I don't. That was a red flag to me. Who is he looking at? And what will that person do on a day when they have to certify elections? Yeah. No, I think uh, the, the, the choice of the venue was brilliant. Uh, but the, the fundamental purpose of this was to say, this deal's over. Those people are irrelevant. And by belittling them as unworthy of the vice presidency, he's further uh, belittling them. What was interesting about his speech last night was he did not talk about his cases. He did not talk about the last election. He actually, I mean, his own sort of free form, weird way, he stuck to the topic that he went there to talk about. So go well, ahead I was going to say, I, as a Republican in Illinois, I got a lot of union support. Uh, this was like operating engineers, painters, carpenters, laborers, right? It's kind of a unique Illinois thing. But what I noticed is even the unions that didn't support me officially, their members, I'd say approaching 30 to 40 percent. Axe can tell you, like, there's a weird, there's kind of a unique Republican yeah. union thing in Illinois. But this idea that union leadership now determines how the unions yeah. vote, that is completely off yeah. the table now. Union leaderships decide where the money goes, but not the members. David, to, to the good point, to, your, to the point that you just made about Trump last night, didn't talk about the cases, didn't talk about the last election. Regardless of the policies that were in the last Trump term that did not benefit these union workers, the promise of your jobs are coming back to right. Lordstown that did not and the plant yeah. closed. If he keeps doing this effectively, is that a major problem for Biden, particularly among union workers, well, particularly look, in the state of Michigan? The fact that Biden went to Michigan and wa marched on that picket line was, I think, a direct response to the fact that Donald Trump was going to be there the next day. And he understands that there's a battle uh, for these voters. So, yes, I think uh, I think it is what Adam says is absolutely true. I mean, this has been a longstanding challenge since Reagan exactly. for Democrats. And Trump speaks to that blue collar, uh, frankly, white, mostly white uh, voter, although he's making some inroads elsewhere. Uh, yeah, this is going to be uh, a challenge. Let me just can despite I, I can, the record. Yes, despite the record. Listen, if Donald Trump were held uh, uh, accountable for the record, he would he would be out of the game. Uh, his one of his superpowers is that he manages to evade accountability uh, for his record. And uh, but to so reframe it, it's an it's an inflection point for us culturally. While union membership is not kind of up overall, labor actions are. Three hundred thousand workers went on some kind of strike 
or labor action this year, which means people look at them differently. It's not big, bad labor is the problem. And both candidates realize that this is a constituency to court once again. And for a long time, for Republicans, they were only the boogeyman. I think it's an interesting moment that as a country, we are looking at the worker again as a constituency to be supported. Um, stick around. I actually, I want to continue this. And I thank you for calling me irrelevant so we could pivot into a really good discussion on this that I want to continue. It's just me forward. just trying to get out of the debate discussion. You know? <laughs> I'm pretty naked about it. Right there. All right, stick around. We're coming back to you guys in a little bit. Also this morning, the Senate floor officially has a formal dress code. Senate lawmakers unanimously passing a resolution Wednesday requiring business attire on the floor, the most important things for the country. It comes after Majority Leader Chuck Schumer decided to stop enforcing an unwritten dress code, which sparked backlash inspired by Senator John Fetterman's preference for hoodies and shorts. CNN's Manu Raju caught up with Fetterman to get his reaction. I maintain that don't we have a lot of really, 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 really more important things that we should be addressing here uh, about the, the Senate. No one has directly come to me and said, you know, the, the, the world will burn if you, you know, wear a hoodie. You know. I'm not wearing, you know, hoodies on the floor as well, too. Uh, I've maintained to just do the, you know, you know, uh, from from the door. And it was never my, my plan to, to do that. Now, Fetterman also says he doesn't mind if his staff dresses down because congressional staffers aren't paid well and the attire could drain their finances. After the vote, Fetterman's office also issued a statement. No, seriously, that's the statement. It was just the viral meme of King of Queens actor Kevin James. Seems like a good statement. <laughs> there you have it. Former Vice President Pence going after his former boss, telling voters Donald Trump is trying to consolidate more power in the White House. He'll join us. We'll ask him about all the big moments from last night's debate. And will Taylor Swift attend Sunday night's Chiefs game against the Jets? It is all Adam Kinzinger is talking about the speculation <laughs> already taking over the Internet. We will address it. You know you want to. My former running mate, Donald Trump, actually has a plan to start to consolidate more power in Washington, D.C., consolidate more power in the executive branch. If I'm president of the United States, it's my intention to make the federal government smaller. We're going to revive federalism in America, and states are going to help bring sure America back. That was former Vice President Mike Pence going after his former boss, who, of course, was absent from the debate stage last night. It was Pence's latest attempt to distance himself from former President Trump, something he's been trying to do since he launched his campaign for the White House. And the former vice president joins us now. Sir, I appreciate you waking up this morning. Uh, I, what was interesting is I tried to kind of watch the debate, get my head around who was saying what and when, uh, which I assume was difficult on the stage, too. The debate last night is, was viewed as an opportunity, an inflection point to some degree for some Republicans. Do you feel like it broke through at all? Well, I, look, it was a privilege to be here at the Reagan Library. I actually became a Republican uh, because of Ronald Reagan. And uh, I was drawn to this party because of a set of principles, a commitment to a strong defense, American leadership in the world, fiscal responsibility, and the right to life and traditional values. And the opportunity to be here and to try and lay out what I think is a Republican time for choosing in the days ahead, that really from Ronald Reagan all the way through our administration, we, we governed on that conservative agenda. Uh, but frankly, Donald Trump and some of his imitators on the stage last night are, are walking away from that agenda, walking away from American leadership in the world, talking the language of appeasement, 
prepared to ignore the national debt. Donald Trump's actually advocating an enormous tax increase on goods coming into our country. Uh, and of course, shying away from, and even as Donald Trump did in the last week, criticizing legislation to protect the unborn. I, I, want, I want my fellow Republicans to know uh, that, uh, that, that if you're looking for a consistent conservative who will lead our party and lead our country on a foundation that our party has led over the last 40 years, and that I'm your man. Uh, Mr. Mr. Vice President, what about the last several months? And I, and I bring this up because we spoke after you had, I think, a pretty significant speech um, about the point you were just making, how the party has to make a decision at this point. In the weeks since then, what has made you think that your message is the one that people want? You lay out your message. It's very detailed uh, and you have a lot of history and a record to back it up. None of it seems to have broken through at this point. Well, I, I honestly think it's it's still early in the process. I think I think I'm actually in the polls uh, uh, about where uh, Rick Santorum was when he won Iowa, about where Mike Huckabee was when he won Iowa, uh, and so you know we're uh, we're just going to keep our head down and keep carrying that message because I'm absolutely convinced that the majority of Republican primary voters still believe in that time honored conservative agenda. They want to see America lead in the world with a strong national defense. They want to see fiscal responsibility and less taxes, and they want to stand for traditional values. And when they look at my record, they'll see of all the people on that stage, I'm, I'm the most qualified and the most consistent conservative. And I think that's why people are going to our website, MikePence2024.com, right. making contributions, making it possible for us to be out there, working our hearts out to earn the support of the people of this party. And ultimately the people of this country. You know, we talked about this last time you spoke. I don't mean to be repetitive, but why are you convinced of that? Like, wh what, is, what is the evidence that, that you're feeling, you're seeing, you're experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis that convinces you despite, and I'm not talking about your polls or po the race polls. I'm talking about subject matter polls, where people are on policy inside the primary. It just doesn't track with that. Well, well, Phil, I, to be honest with you, I, I know, look, in your line of work, you got to go off the polls. I, I go off people. I, I go off people that are coming out to our town hall meetings on very short notice. I, 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 I talk to people on the street, you know, people coming up to us and really looking at us and, and saying in a very heartfelt way, thank you for running. Thank you for what you stand for. They appreciate our faith. They appreciate our family, our commitment to the conservative cause. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've run a few times, elected six times to Congress, one time as governor, one time as vice president. And uh, I, got, I think I got a pretty good feel uh, for, uh, for what's happening on the street. And uh, I, I think uh, I like our chances of come that January 15 Iowa caucus. And we're going to work our hearts out to continue to build support. I did mention you had a resume. <laughs> it includes electoral victories for sure. Um, I, I want to ask you, you know, you made the point about the, the former president wants to consolidate power uh, in the executive branch. The, some of the things he's been saying, yeah. what it made me think of was a recent tweet that he had or whatever we call his social media postings these days uh, about Mark Milley, suggesting that to some degree he deserved execution uh, for what happened. Milley responded. Listen to what he said much as these comments are directed at me, it's also directed at the institution of the military. Um, and there's, there's 2.1 million of us in uniform. Are you worried about your safety? I've got adequate safety precautions. I, I wish those comments had not been made, but they were, and we'll take appropriate measures to ensure my safety and the safety of my family.
Mr. Vice President, you've experienced threats. You've also experienced the ambivalence of the former president when threats were made uh, and verbalized related to your life. What's your response to that? Well, there's no call for that kind of language directed towards someone who's worn the uniform of the United States and served with such distinction. Look, I, I haven't agreed with every decision that, uh, that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who just retired, made over the last two years. But I'm pretty sure most of those came out of the Biden administration, you know, pushing their political correctness and woke politics at the Pentagon. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things that uh, I wish we'd have gotten to last night, Phil, is that... Uh, <laughs> I think the American people are literally exhausted by American politics today, and they long for us to restore a, a threshold of civility in public life. And one of the things I hear when I'm out on the street and out campaigning is that, that people know that, uh, that I put a high premium on civility and on, on speaking in a respectful way, even when we disagree. I keep it on policy, not on, on personal invective. And uh, I think it's one of the reasons why I grow more confident by the day that uh, we're going to turn the page on uh, on this difficult and divisive time in our nation, and we're going to find ways to actually come together and solve some of the problems that have been that have been uh, that have been, you know, burdening the American people for many years. All right, former Vice President Mike Pence, we appreciate your time this morning, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. All right. Well, happening today, President Biden is going to give a major address, warning against ongoing threats to this country's democracy and what he sees as Donald Trump's central role in those threats. And CNN's David Culver shows us firsthand the long and treacherous journey some Venezuelan migrants are making just to enter Mexico on their way to the United States. Interestingly enough, the reason we're walking right now with them, and some of them are trying to hurry up, is because they're trying to go around a migration checkpoint. Well, happening today, President Biden heading to Arizona to deliver a major speech on, quote, threats to democracy. In it, the president expected to highlight the contrast between himself and former President Trump ahead of their potential 2024 rematch. And that comes as House Republicans prepare to hold their first impeachment inquiry hearing in just over an hour. A spokesperson for the House Oversight Committee has told CNN that the 10 a.m. hearing is expected to focus on the constitutional and legal questions Republicans are raising about Biden. The House uh, GOP has made Hunter Biden's business dealings a central component of their impeachment inquiry. To date, there is no public evidence that the president personally received any money. Also, the government shuts down in two days and You're some such odd a hours, just in case. Mattingly, they're going to figure it out, right? Um, David Axelrod, Adam <laughs> Kinzinger, and Audie Cornish are back with us. I want to talk about this speech today. Um, it's not that I have any disrespect for the impeachment process or inquiry or whatever they're they're going through down there. I think this speech is important. I think we make a mistake if we don't pay attention to it, because I think a lot of people made a mistake in the lead up to the midterms. Yes. When Biden did speeches and mm -hmm. said, this doesn't land. The coloring looks weird. The backdrop is odd. No one cares about this. And then exit poll after exit poll yep. after exit poll said the exact opposite, which drove the overperformance. Right. They noticed that, too. Uh, the White House. I mean, they believe that that speech had a lot to do with uh, setting the tone for the midterms. And I think at this point, when there's so much uh, hand-wringing and teeth-gnashing among uh, Democrats about the president and his prospects, this is an attempt to reset the stakes of the election. And it's smart in that I don't think continually asking uh, for a report card in an environment in which people are very sour about the direction of the country is going to help him. But uh, raising the stakes about the choice 
and what the mm-hmm. what, what the election is about and really putting the onus on Trump is uh, something that that may. I think democracy, the thing is, is people follow leaders. And I know we've kind of gotten away from that, this idea that leaders can actually lead people. And so by standing up and talking about the state of democracy, talking about the importance, that actually, I think, partially sets the table for what's going to happen. And I think it's important for leaders to be very clear about the challenges we're facing. It's important for leaders to paint a clear vision. Because I'm going to tell you what, Donald Trump is going to use a lot of anger. He's going to use kind of the dark arts of leadership, of influencing. We need somebody to show a path to the future and a vision for the future. And, uh, and I think that's essential just for the survival of democracy. It'll be interesting to see how this speech actually compares to that speech, like what language he's going to use. Are we going to hear more about rights and Roe v. Wade, et cetera? Because during the midterms, you had multiple people running for secretary of state who were talking about various ways they were going to deal with election fraud, people who were very much pushing kind of the election lie um, of fraud in the last election. People were hearing this in commercials. They were seeing it on the ballot. And I think that that made for an atmosphere where he could step in and say, whoa, 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 this is as weird as you think. Let's not do this. Now he's doing it in a different environment. Yeah. And I'm curious to see like what their approach is going to be. The biggest yeah. example of that? Though? Well, listen, like on the most- I, I mean, but it's I mean, different I when you have a little army of acolytes going around saying the same thing and saying we're going to spread this ideology and we're going to have our hand on the ballot mechanism. But, I think people saw but, that but, as a real threat. But the truth is, if you see, if you look at what Donald Trump has done and what he stands accused of in court... And what he says, including what he said about General Milley in just the last week, he is a Trump 2.0 would be the Delta variant of democracy, a thousand times more virulent than the first round and, and harder to control. Will but, he say something that will bait Trump in a way that would be problematic for his court cases because he is dealing with uh, he's been told by judges, don't go out there saying X, Y, and Z, and maybe this will draw him out into having that conversation. The thing that concerns me, and I think it should concern them and anybody who cares about this, is the word democracy has become sort of trivialized. It's lost its meaning, I think. It's been bandied about so much to voters, and I think it's important to be very specific about what that means and to talk about not just what Trump has done, but what he says he will do, because as we know other than building walls and stuff, when he says, particularly on the vengeance front, he's going to do something, he does it. True. Final thought? Well, I just think, I mean, it, it's so true. It's, uh, uh, I, I think democracy is trivial, trivialized. I think we have to kind of recage the seriousness of this moment. And unfortunately, we get stuck in the kind of day-to-day baseball to see what's really at stake. Thank you. Yep. Appreciate having you guys. So ahead, our David Culver showing all of us firsthand the journey that some migrants are making on their way to the United States. And in case you missed it, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was singing the blues on Wednesday, literally. Yes, that was the Secretary of State performing at a launch event for a new initiative to use music as a diplomatic tool promoting democracy. Lincoln joked, if this doesn't clear the house, I don't know what will. Stay with us. Mexico's president says he's inviting the governments of 10 nations to discuss this unprecedented spike 
not only in the United States, but also at his own country's southern border with Guatemala when it comes to migration. The announcement following Mexico's pledge last week to help curb the tide of migrants heading to America, which U.S. officials say is working to cut down numbers significantly. As CNN's David Culver reports from Mexico, where he's been following a group of migrants. We're here in southern Mexico and we're walking with a group of migrants. We actually met this group in Guatemala and they have been making the trek for about 18 days. They're originally from Venezuela, a couple of families and some other stragglers who have come together and they've gotten to know each other along the way. Interestingly enough, the reason we're walking right now with them and some of them are trying to hurry up is because they're trying to go around a migration checkpoint. They were picked up on the riverbank on the Mexico side and they were taken in a van. They of course had to pay and brought to just before the checkpoint. That's when they were all unloaded and you can see that's where these folks are walking behind high grass and they're finding their way to catch up with that same van but on the other side of the checkpoint. We should point out we're able to go around it because we can choose any route. We're here legally. They are not in Mexico legally. In fact, they have not entered any of the countries since leaving Venezuela legally. Their hope, of course, like everyone else, to get to the U.S. But this just shows you how extensive even what is normally an hour drive and what's going to be a whole day for them turns out to be. That is David Culver on Mexico's southern border. David, thank you, as always, for that reporting. Also happening this morning, House Republicans holding their first public hearing in the impeachment inquiry of President Biden with the government shutdown just two days away. A live report ahead. And could Taylor Swift's red era have her visiting <laughs> gangrene this weekend? The speculation that's ripping through the Internet and the studio. Coming up next. Jets fans could be saying welcome to New York to Taylor Swift this weekend after Swift was spotted supporting Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey at last week's game in Kansas City. There is intense speculation as to if she will attend this Sunday's game against the Jets at MetLife Stadium, fueled by NFL insider Jordan Schultz and front office sports. Swift has yet to comment on the rumor, but that has not stopped some fans from hoping it's true. The Empire State Building was lit up in red and white Monday for Swift's uh, condiment choices at the Chiefs game. Ketchup and ranch, is that, is that really? There's a picture, and like, Swift fans were like, very fascinated by what appears to be ranch. I'm like, no, no, like, it's ranch. Like, Why it's cool. is that weird? I, you asked, I don't know. I, I like the same thing. Ranch is great, right, from so. Ohio. Uh, how did Applebee's respond? Oh, Applebee's, also awesome. They responded that they're in their <laughs> tender era. Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes, he spoke highly of Swift after practice yesterday. I met her. She was uh, she's really cool, good people. Um, but like Travis said, man, I'm going to let them have their privacy um, and uh, just keep it moving. Kelsey himself addressed the hoopla on his podcast yesterday. Shout out to Taylor for, uh, for pulling up. That was pretty ballsy. That was pretty ballsy, yeah. <laughs> I just thought it was awesome how everybody in the suite had nothing but great things to say about her. She looked amazing. Everybody was talking about her in a, in great light. And on top of that, uh, you know, the the day went perfect for Chiefs fans, of course. It's important to note, I would just note that if she does go and Kelsey loses to the New York Jets, that relationship is over. It's that? It's based on that? I just would say, you don't want to be losing to the Jets if you're trying to... Hang out with a woman that you might fancy. That's right. 
We're, We're going to leave it there. <laughs> See CNN News just starts now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.